Hey, movie likers and people who just stumbled onto this podcast, I'm Word Burglar, and this is Do You Still Like This Movie? The podcast where a guest and I find out if we still like a movie that we used to like. Uh, I think that title sums it up. Uh, today, my guest is none other than Buck65, DJ, producer, MC, radio host, and as you're soon to discover, quite the movie liker and connoisseur, and today we are discussing the 1984 hip-hop classic, maybe? Beat Street. That's right, it's like a heartbeat, and uh, my heartbeat is excited, because this is a great episode. Buck 65 first came on my radar when he came on my radio. As a kid, I was, I feel like I was about 11 or 12, and I stumbled onto his radio show, The Basement, on CKDU college radio out of Halifax and for those who don't know the basement uh, was a pivotal source of old school underground independent hip-hop for anyone who could find it in the 90s especially in Halifax when you couldn't find this rap everywhere it wasn't always at the record store it wasn't uh, you know certainly wasn't on other radio stations you might have found some stuff on much music or something but uh but basically the basement was the source and introduced me to so many amazing artists and aspects of the culture uh really at an early age and and set me on on the path to discovery of so many amazing artists from hip-hop culture uh really globally uh, especially of, of all the the amazing stuff that was coming out in the 90s and i'll never I'll never forget how how awesome that show was. I used to tape it on cassettes every week, even though <laughs> even though Buck sixty five, aka DJ Critical, would uh, would ask us not to tape his show. My friends and I shout out all the dregs. We used to tape that show because you needed you needed those tracks. I would listen to these tapes on my paper route, and then of course I would go and buy the records whenever I had the chance. And uh, and every time I see Buck sixty five, I have to tell him like, look. The Basement was was such a, an amazing show, and uh, and I'm sure many listeners of The Basement back in the day w- would fully agree with me. So uh, so that's why this is going to be an amazing show, because Beat Street is all about the early days of hip hop, and uh, the culture was very young, 1984. Uh, still really finding its voice in in all different aspects and all the different elements uh, in many different ways. And this movie definitely comes up in any discussion when you're talking about rap movies. Uh, and honestly, guys, even if you don't know the movie, you're gonna you're gonna get some some great hip hop insight and history and perspective today from Buck sixty five and uh, and maybe from me too. But I'm. Uh, I'm very excited about this show. I know it's been a while since we got a new episode out. Thanks for, for bearing with us. Things have been super busy behind the scenes. The new album is coming along. Very excited to share with you in 2022. Uh, the 2021 has really been a year of, uh, of working on a lot of stuff behind the scenes. And, uh, and I have been nonstop busy, even though the podcasts have not been uh, coming out with much frequency. So, so uh, stay tuned. Uh, I promise a lot of good stuff coming up now for buck 65 if, if you're not familiar uh there's so many amazing albums in the in the buck 65 discography oeuvre uh more recently laundromat boogie was reissued on vinyl the album with joe rum bombay definitely go check that out there's a new album called billy relatively new in the last year or so 
uh, Buck 65 and Controller 7. Really, really dope project. And, uh, and I just heard a new track with Sage Francis and Buck 65 called Dream School, which is really dope as well. It's on the Alexander Brown record. So go, go track that down. Go listen to the classics, Man Overboard, Vertex, uh, Weirdo Magnet on cassette, if you can find that, featuring a great jam with J.O. Smooth called Shout It Out. You might, uh, you might hear a familiar name getting shouted out on that one. That's uh, definitely a source of pride for me. But, uh, but I digress. Look, I hope you're enjoying the holidays and finding some time to, uh, to just, you know, gather your thoughts and, and, and take it easy a bit amidst all that is going on out there. And I really hope this episode can provide you a little bit of entertainment and maybe uh, a little bit of info and uh, history that you may not have known about because uh, we're going to dig deep into Beat Street and find out if we still like this movie. One time in your life, but don't know if you still do. Well, if you don't have time to watch it at the moment, me and a guest will for you. See me, some strangers, and some friends of mine are gonna see what flicks stand the test of time. So if you're curious to know what holds up and what doesn't about some old movie you saw with your cousin, you're in the right place, and you know you might just find out. Do you still like this? South Bronx, 1983. A group of up-and-coming, hip-hop-loving friends, each with a specialty, a DJ, graffiti artist, b-boy, and a uh, promoter, manager. Um, they travel through New York's vibrant culture, from house parties and abandoned warehouses to the biggest venues in town, such as the Roxy. Um, we watch them overcome challenges and spread their art across the city while brushing shoulders with hip-hop royalty, like Cool Herc, Melly Mel, Africa Bambata, Throw in a bumping old school soundtrack and uh, tons of dance numbers, and you've got the 1984 beloved hip hop film, Beat Street. It's like a heartbeat. And with me to find out if we still like this movie is none other than the legendary Buck 65. In the house. I am so honored to have you here with me today. This is awesome. Well, yeah, thanks for. Uh Inviting me, having me through, and um, if that Roomba kicks into gear, I'll be sure to lift my feet as it makes its way past. <laughs> <laughs> now, I'm sure many of our listeners know, but you are a, uh, a hip-hop artist in, in your own right, a DJ, host, MC, B-boy. Mm -hmm. uh, Once upon well. a time, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. you, the, the fact that you chose this movie to talk about today is, is really exciting for me because, yeah, we can... You know, we've got an expert on on the mic, and uh, I will say you are a pioneer, not just in Canadian hip hop, but I would say in global hip hop. So, oh shucks, well, yeah, I did my best. Yeah, well, you know, and we go back a ways, and uh, I always tell people I remember getting kicked out of one of your shows because I was underage, <laughs> <laughs> and then you came to visit uh, the comic shop I worked at the next yep. day, uh, which I like to think was on purpose, but you might have just happened to be coming in to buy comics and. Uh, and you, you mentioned that you felt bad that I got kicked out of the show. And that always meant a lot to me. And uh, anyway, so... The and, good old days. Yeah, the good old days. I'm yeah. Buying tapes off you out of your apartment in yeah. downtown Halifax. Yeah, man. Yeah, I've still got them. A lot of memories yeah. there. And I feel as though it's 
you know, with all the different hats I have worn and still wear, it makes for uh, an interesting analysis looking at this particular movie because I can, I can well, to, to use a different metaphor, I guess, I can look at it through a lot of different goggles. And, uh, and you know, there's, there's a, a lot of different ways to look at it. And in some cases, that means uh, almost a little bit of cognitive dissonance going on in my head as I watch uh, this movie. So Absolutely. Well, yeah, because you're also a big film buff. I know you, exactly. you enjoy the cinema. So yes. This is, uh, and yeah, it had been a long time since I'd watched this because there was a time in my life where I must have seen this like 20 times. And, yes. Um, exactly gone. the same for me. And uh, the soundtrack for me lived for a long time after initially seeing the movie as well. Uh, and so... Um, but yeah, for whatever reason, um, it's not one that I had gone back to. In fact, I would be surprised, having watched it the other day, I'm thinking at best it's the third time I've ever seen it. I think I m might have watched it a, you know, like when it first came out. In fact, I think I might have gone out to the theater to watch it and then maybe on VHS and then I don't know if I've seen it since. So it's probably been since the you know mid '80s since I've seen this. Wow! Now, if you saw it in a theater, this would have been Nova Scotia. Would Nova you... Scotia, and I'm almost certain that it would have been at uh, the Downsview Cinema in Lower Sackville. Downsview, right yeah. on. Is that still? That's not still open. <laughs> I have I no idea. Wow! I wonder. Oh, man, I like. I remember going. I think I saw one movie at Downsview. I remember going to Penhorn a lot. Oh yeah, Penhorn. Penhorn and Dark. <laughs> <laughs> For that me, was kind of the dark mall you didn't want to go to yeah, sometimes. Geez, it, was a, it was a little it, sketchy, had like a well, Bargain Heralds or yeah. some, a cheaper version than Bargain Heralds. Down's view was, you know, pretty sketch in its own right. I would go there sometimes with my mom, with the Kmart being the main attraction for those particular journeys. And then at times, uh, as a kid on my own, own, although I don't know how it would have gotten there because it would have been, I mean, it was like a 20, 25 minute drive from my little hometown of uh, Mount Uniac, a little too far to ride my bike, I think. But I remember there was an arcade in there and I'd spend quite a bit of time in the arcade and it was situated very close to uh, the Wheelies roller skating rink. Wheelies, yeah. And so in a lot of ways, it was... In, in those days, early to mid-80s, a real hub of, you know, 80s culture. Totally. The roller skating rink right there in the arcade. Um, Especially, like, teenage culture. And yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly. And, uh, and in a weird way, in my mind, I link a lot of, like, hip-hop, early hip-hop memories to that mall as well. Was there, like, breakdancing going on at, at Wheelies yeah. at the time? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there was. Uh, and... I would go religiously every weekend, and I, I know on Saturdays for sure, and maybe on Sundays for like the afternoon sessions, uh, they would open up the middle of the, uh, you know, rink for breakdancing. And uh, so my friend Bruce and I used to go out there and throw down. I think you, <laughs> a there's a song where you might even mention yes. him and this type of activity. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Memor back, mem yeah. Memories of the Past, I yeah, think is the man. song yeah, you're yeah, yeah. thinking of. Yeah. And, uh, and so, yeah, the routine would basically be 
um, you know, and I, I think maybe we took like an Acadian Lines bus from Mount Uniac out there. You get dropped off at the mall, hang out at the arcade for a little while, and then walk up to Wheelie's uh, and do your thing. And then maybe sometimes if you were lucky, you would make an arrangement with a parent or something to pick you up at five o'clock and drive you back home. Right on, right yeah. on. And then maybe hit the Kmart and see if they had new Star Wars figures or something, yeah. No doubt. And I can <laughs> remember buying vinyl in the Kmart as well. What? Oh, yeah. Cool. Any records you remember off the top? The, the only super distinct memory I have, and this takes us slightly off track, but I think it stands out in my memory because there was so much excitement about it, but I remember buying Kiss Unmasked <laughs> <laughs> in there because we were all excited and upset about the thought of Kiss without the makeup. Yeah. But I can yeah. remember very specifically going into that Kmart to buy that record. There's a very good chance I bought the Beat Street soundtrack records in that Kmart as well. Yeah. Very good chance. And there were two Beat two. Street Pink albums. and Yellow. Yeah. Yep. And uh, I mean, you know, I don't know if people would call this movie a musical, but I think it kind of qualifies in a way. Yeah. So there's a lot of music and enough that you would have to split it up onto two separate releases. So there's the soundtrack, volume one and volume two. Absolutely. It's funny you mention that. It's actually classified as a dance drama. Oh, yes. <laughs> what else falls in, into that genre? I don't know. Dirty dancing? Like what? Dirty dancing... Now, what about like... Um, Tango in Paris? <laughs> <laughs> no, Not quite. <laughs> yeah, I wonder about that one. But uh, like West Side Story, is that a musical or is that a dance drama? That's a good... Yeah. I don't know. Dance drama. the difference? Is it underground hip-hop? Is it backpack hip-hop? Uh, Footloose. Ah, oh, That's yeah. probably a dance drama. <laughs> right? Flash dance, perhaps? Quite the know. company. Well, yeah. in June 1984, had you caught this in the theater... Here's uh, just a few other films you might have been able to catch at the time. Gremlins was in theaters June 1984, which is strange because wow. you think of it as maybe like a holiday movie. Yeah. It, yeah. And then another one, Ghostbusters, which I always associated with like Halloween, came out in June 1984. Huh. Uh, Conan the Destroyer. So. And I remember seeing all of these, if not at Down's View. What was it called? The uh, movie theater that they had out in uh, Bedford by the Chinese restaurant out was there. Was that by the Towers? No. No, no. Further out as before you go the toward. Empire, bef yeah, it before the Empire. Yeah. Before the Empire. Yeah. Before you headed, uh, as you headed out toward Halifax, there was a, a place out there by like gloobies and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I've not heard that. There's a name I have not heard in some time. <laughs> Gloobies, is that even how you pronounce it? <laughs> I think so. I thought it was Gloobs. <laughs> no. Gloobies. <laughs> Don't get it twisted. It was, was Gloobies. It, was it furniture? What was that place? Yeah, furniture and home electronics. <laughs> and I seem to remember hanging out with some girls in Bedford who were like friends with... You know, some someone who was uh, you know, related <laughs> related to the Gloobies Empire in some way made them a real hot shot. <laughs> I did know one of the Wacky Wheatleys. Oh yeah, and they were wonderful. They're not really wacky at all, huh? Yeah, is that right? <laughs> the least wacky person you wacky could meet. Wacky Wheatleys, yeah. and there was, um, well. Gosh, we, that's a real rabbit this hole. We could go down there, but <laughs> I saw all those movies though. I remember. It's funny, 
if it if it wasn't the first, it would have been like it was the first or second Conan movie, and I distinctly remember walking out of the theater and saying to myself, if not that was the best movie I've ever seen. And I think I might've been, you know, bold enough in my preteen ignorance to say greatest movie ever made. (laughs) (laughs) Forget, you know, Citizen Kane or. Is that the one where the head falls down the stairs? It's like James Earl Jones. That's that's the first one. I'm pretty sure. Yeah. 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 It's been a while. I'll have to revisit that. The second one was with Grace Jones. Right. And Wilt Chamberlain. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Well, and then on top of all those, you could have also seen Rhinestone with Sylvester Stallone and wow. Dolly Parton. I think he plays like a cab driver in yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah, I've never seen it. but That's funny. I was thinking about that movie just the other day, weirdly enough, because my girlfriend's been super into Dolly Parton lately, and uh, I have this... Dolly Parton book at home, and she was flipping through, and there was a, a picture of like the poster from that movie or something like that. And we were both commenting on that's a weird combo, Dolly Parton <laughs> and Sylvester Stallone. <laughs> wow, who would have thought all those movies were in theaters at the same time? I must have been going to the movies a lot in those days because because yeah. that summer, I mean, I, I definitely would have seen all. Well, not not I, I hate to say it, I didn't see the the Dolly Sly uh, <laughs> picture, but. But those other ones, I, I definitely saw all those in the theater, no doubt. Wow. Well, this was, uh, I was trying to think, like, in terms of hip-hop movies, where this yeah. fell, because there was a lot in the early 80s, right? Mm-hmm. But I feel like Beat Street may have been the the most widely uh, distributed, uh, obviously, there's, like, Wild Style was 83, November 83, Style Wars was 83 as well, but that yep. was, like, a PBS uh, special. Right. Yeah. Um, Crush Groove came after... That would have been after. Where was Breakin'? And so Breakin' was the month before, May 1984. So I didn't know that. So back They were that close. Yeah. Now, Breakin' 2 Electric Boogaloo, I think, was a year or two later. But Yeah. Yeah, but Breakin' and Beat Street were were that close A month apart. Yeah. Man. And Beat Street's always been like the preeminent one in my mind. Like, as a kid, I, I was trying to figure out when I first saw it. And growing up in Nova Scotia... We used to get, like, the Bangor channels, like, Bangor, Maine, or, like, Callis mm-hmm. um, at Boston. Like, all these affiliates of, like, ABC, I think it was. And yeah. there, it was, like, an afternoon matinee. And I remember catching, like, parts of it. And it felt like it was on all the time. Huh. And I do clearly remember, you know, certain scenes, like, you know. With with Ramo and and yep. uh, and the the Christmas party and stuff, right? Which I was like in my brain, I was like, oh, it wasn't C- Curtis Blow? It's Treacherous Three, but we'll we'll yeah. we'll get to that, yeah. you know, because he's got the Christmas rapping song. Yeah, but yeah, so I saw it on TV very very early on, and I just remember being so amazed at the breakdancing. Oh just yeah, like how do these guys do this? It yeah. was just, and it felt like another world because I probably didn't see it till late. And so 84 at that time is just like so iconic New York. And yeah. Uh, yeah. And that was the difference in my mind between Beat Street and uh, Breakin' because Breakin' was more of a West Coast thing. Um, and, uh, and, and so, yeah, I remember the dancing in that one being cool and, you know, Ice T's part and, and all that stuff, cool. But, um, 
Beat Street, I think it's safe to say, was like, you know, more of a real snapshot of like hip hop culture and what was going on in New York mm-hmm. at that time. And, you know, the L.A. scene still hadn't blown up like super huge, at least outside of the, you know, the West Coast. Uh, so, um, yeah, Wrecking Crew and Dre hadn't really yeah. taken over just yet. Not quite yet. <laughs> Not quite yet. Um, just real quick, so this was put out by Orion, and they were known for movies like Caddyshack, Arthur, Life of Brian, uh, right. Terminator with Arnold, and Arnold, who would later star with Radon Chong, in, who also is in Beat Street. They yeah. were in Commando together. Oh my gosh, that's right. And that's our Canadian connection right there. Yeah, right on. Yeah, yeah. She's from Edmonton, right? Yeah. That's, which is crazy. Uh, Robocop was Orion, Bill and Ted, and one of my faves, UHF, was a, uh, oh, a yeah. famous Orion film. Huh. And yeah, so this is, you know, in that Orion pictures, they're not around anymore, but right. certainly like for a certain time in the 80s, this was, if you went to a movie or you rented a movie, you got used to seeing that spinning O in space. Yeah, yeah. The iconic uh, Orion, uh, you know, sort of logo that you'd see at the beginning of the movies, there was something uh, familiar and almost comforting about it. And I think totally. seeing it off the top of Beat Street, quite frankly, lent a little bit of like legitimacy to it, right? Like this For is sure. not, you know, you, you kind of knew before it even got started, okay, this is not going to be some like, you know, low budget, rinky dink. Whatever this is, le- this is legit. This is the same, you know, logo I'm seeing in the intro here as as some of the other you know big favorite movies of of the time or whatever. Yeah. So uh, you know, kind of a thing. Like it's kind of a kind of a a thing. Yeah, that this was when you look at like Wild Style, which does yeah. look very low budget. And, right. Yeah. Yeah. So, kind you know, kind of um, exciting in a sense, and, um, you know, for anyone who cared about the culture, I guess, there was just something uh, sort of, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, it, it like, lent, lent uh, a sense, anyhow, of some, like, legitimacy to the whole thing, because to that point, the culture was still largely um, not only underground, but not necessarily seen as like legit or important in the eyes of a lot of people. Uh, so, uh, you know, it lent some like credibility almost in a sense to like the culture that, it, you know, this movie was made in the first place with a budget and distributed by like a, you know, a big distributor and everything. So, yeah, absolutely. Um, the, the director was Stan Lathan, I think is how we pronounce his name, or Lathan, uh, who had done some stuff for Miami Vice, Hill Street Blues, so TV stuff. Uh, he later did like Martin and Moesha, yeah. Dave Chappelle specials, which is kind of cool. He just recently won a Grammy for one of uh, the Chappelle specials. Um, and so here's a big one I didn't know. He was actually the co-creator of Deaf Comedy Jam with Russell Simmons. Right. Um, and then Run's House, the lesser-known reality TV show starring <laughs> right. Run of the DMC. But yeah, this was it as far as, um, you know, like film. Otherwise, he was pretty much a TV guy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then the writer, uh, Steve Hager, don't really, he hasn't done much else. He worked with Cheech and Chong. Uh, I don't know what his particular background with hip-hop culture was or why he came up with this story, but... Maybe Ray Don yeah. had more go, you know, to do with this behind the scenes than, uh, than we think. Oh, yeah? Was she really into it? No. <laughs> well, you know, she's Tommy Chong's 
of course. daughter. Yes, right? yes. So, so that's all the connection. Yeah. Well, could it be? I, who knows? That's... <laughs> <laughs> was she the real brains behind the whole thing? <laughs> well, uh, well, yeah. So let's let's just get into this movie then. Yeah. Um, so I guess off the top, would like your memories? You saw it maybe in theaters, yep. and and when you saw it, do you remember being particularly like blown away by anything in general? Completely blown away uh, when I first saw it. I remember you know walking out of the theater pumped and. Everyone else that was there to see it, it was like more people like me. And so I seem to remember that coming out of the theater into the lobby and otherwise into the mall, because where Downsview, the way Downsview Mall was laid out, where I saw it, you walk out from the theater into like a, a sort of a big open area in in the mall. And I seem to remember that people were feeling so pumped and inspired that there was a lot of just spontaneous break dancing happening in the in the lobby and in the mall uh, afterwards. That's so, amazing. Yeah. Uh, maybe even with just no music, just people had to dance. <laughs> um, and um, I can remember... To a certain degree, um, even, you know, getting a little bit caught up in the story and like caring about the story being told in the movie, but primarily um, because I was, you know, I would have been a, what, a maybe 13, 12 or 13 year old little b-boy myself that the, the breakdancing was like really the thing that I was most excited about. Um, and you know, I mean, the, the musical performances and like, you know, seeing like bits of the DJing and so on and so forth. So, I mean, you know, it was, it was that stuff certainly more so than, than the story. But I remember, I, I do remember at the time being like uh, affected by Ramo's death. Spoiler alert, <laughs> he dies in the movie and in, it, it all kind of came back watching it the other day in somewhat graphic fashion and uh i think that kind of scared the crap out of me a bit when i was a kid yeah that's a yeah. big scene especially coming like growing up in nova scotia where we don't have subways we've got trains but yeah you know but then coming going to any city montreal or toronto or new york where they have subway systems i was always i would always think of that thinking, yeah whoa man ramo um <laughs> we'll uh, we'll get off. So Ramo's definitely one of our characters. He's a graffiti artist that uh, that's part of this sort of like core group of friends. Yeah, uh, you've got Kenny, aka Double K, who's kind of like the DJ. He's, yes, he's kind of on the come up in this, right? Like yep. he's kind of he's getting starting to get a bit of notoriety. Got got skills as a DJ, yep. putting on local parties and abandoned warehouses. Um, there's his younger brother Lee, yep. who's uh, a b boy who's got some crazy breaking skills. And uh, there's Charlie, who's kind of like this promoter guy, like pretty yeah. classic. Yeah, it's like he kind of wants to be like the kind of the manager. He's like the the guy whose aspirations are all kind of on the on the business side of things, and you know wants wants to be running the show. And uh, had a great look, by the way, with like the long, uh, sort of like. I don't know, tweed trench coat or something, but then with the Kangol and... Uh, oh, the fashion in this movie. Is great. It's every scene, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it just yeah, takes They nail that, and with, uh, with the kid, by the way, you really got the sense, with like the opening credits and everything else, 
that there were people involved in the making of this movie who were banking on the idea of him becoming a star. This, this is going to make right, the kid a star. Right, Because right. um, I think, if I remember correctly, in the credits, it might have even been intro- and introducing yeah, yeah. You know, so-and-so, which you know, movies will often do when they think, like, okay, we've got something here. This is, this is you know, this kid's going to be a star. Yeah, Robert Taylor. And I don't name. think he just, there was ever anything. I mean, I just never saw that kid again. And he was a really good uh, dancer, like yeah. a skilled B-boy, really good, legit. But um, I don't think I ever saw him, you know, act or or dance or like I never saw him pop up in the hip hop world even anywhere again that I know of. I, I I don't remember ever seeing him again. Yeah, I wonder if he was he wasn't part of New York City Breakers or I don't believe groups. so. Yeah. I don't believe so, and I don't want to go off on a tangent here. And this is not even entirely relevant. But a friend of mine was in the New York City Breakers. And so I dropped him a line the other day. I wanted to ask a few questions, including like what, hap- what happened with that kid or how, how did he fit in with things? And I, I, di- I didn't hear back in time. If I hear anything, oh, okay. I'll, I'll get back to you and, and let right. you know. But I, I don't have the sense that he was, uh, you know, an actual member of the, uh, of the New York City Breakers otherwise. There are some great breakdancing appearances like Rocksteady Crew. Yeah, crazy legs. Of yeah, course. I mean, all the top guys uh, of of the time. I mean, you know, as far as like early, you know, b boying went. That I mean, that was a, a part of the movie. They definitely got right. They got all the top guys. Well, it is a dance drama. It's a dance drama, and so if you're gonna, <laughs> you know, if you're gonna do this, uh, and uh, they definitely bring up that b boy drama, though the fact that you're like. These two crews are kind of competing with each other. Like yeah. early on, and from that, pretty much the opening of the film, we open on some b boying, and yep. then we go to that warehouse party, which is cool too because it's this abandoned place that these kids have kind of figured out how to run power and throw their own parties, and everybody shows up. Us girls show up, who which I'm not really that familiar. Like if they had yeah. much of a career beyond this, uh, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't really think so, but. One thing that they establish early on is that essentially, although I don't know if they ever mention names of crews in the movie, but it was essentially New York City Breakers versus uh, Rocksteady, and Rocksteady was sort of set up as the villains, Yeah, right? Because the kid who was one of the stars of, of the movie is essentially with uh, the guys from the New York City Breakers and they're kind of battling throughout the movie. They seem to have some some beef or some bad blood, or maybe it's a friendly rivalry. Yeah. I'm not sure, but it it seemed like you know. Well, I mean, there was some harsh language. I mean, they referred to them as suckers at one point. So, <laughs> you don't um, miss? yeah. So yeah, that that was part of the you know subplot side you know kind of story that there there's a, a battle going on between these two rival b boy crews. Yeah, and they were called the. Beat Street Breakers. Oh, that's right. Yeah, 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 that's yeah, what, yeah. So they're New York City Breakers in in the real world, but yeah, in the yeah. movie they are the Beat Street Breakers and kind of representing. So what Beat Street was became like that yes. crew. That's right. Which they never really quite say like this block is Beat Street, but you get the impression that yeah. that's where everyone's from. Yes. Um, there was an extra character who was added to 
our core group of friends early on. And he's always been a standout for whatever reason. Like, one of the biggest scenes I remember is uh, the guy that they don't actually, I don't think they name him in the film. His name is Henry. And they meet him in the basement banging on pipes Yeah, uh, early on because he's looking for his friend Tito, who, uh, <laughs> right. who he met in the army, and he could really play Congo drums. And I guess Henry's like a drifter now who's just... Yeah, so he's like a Vietnam vet, right? And yeah. he knew, he knew, you know, he just, he hadn't seen this friend since Nam. And so he's trying to summon him by like <laughs> tapping on the, on the pipes in the basement of this building with wrenches. Yeah. And he's playing to the beat that they're playing upstairs. Yeah. So like, it's like, dude, da, 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 da. And, and then, the, then he comes upstairs. He's like, got any food, man? So they bring him upstairs to party and then he breaks up some, the B-boy school. Skirmish. By taking a bite out of a beer can. Yeah, he's so <laughs> that was always. I think I've even like quoted that somewhere in a song or something. But yeah, the guy who eats the can. So I, I always just called him can eater. Yes, that's like a pretty badass. Pretty badass. And uh, and I remember at the time the squabble they were talking about biting. Like someone was biting someone else's moves, and then I think his motivation was, oh, you want to. You know, you you talking about biting? I'll show you biting. Watch this. I'm gonna take a bite right out of this can. And somehow they were like, "Whoa, okay." And that was it. They worked. Yeah. But before going back to see this movie a few days ago, that scene of him being down in the basement and tapping on the pipes really stood out in my memory for whatever reason. Um, it that was one of the few details after all these years that I really remembered from the movie. I don't know why that stood out to me so much. It's a bit spooky. Like they yeah. go, you're, they're having a party and then they hear this thing and it kind of, it's there's, you know, the tensions building and actually the soundtrack, which isn't really like hip hop at the time. It's just kind yeah. of more just like movie, like right. setting the scene. You're building up some suspense and we're still early enough in the film where we're like, okay, what are they going to find down here? Like, where is this movie going? Yeah, and then it's this kind of friendly vet wrench pipe playing dude <laughs> yeah. kind of looks like Seth Rogen. <laughs> right, yeah, big sort of beefy dude. Yeah. Down in the basement. Yeah, they, and like, the, you know, they're, you can see there's fear painted on the faces of our heroes as they descend into the depths, the very bowels of, of this building, which is already in, you know, what looks like a, a war zone in the Bronx. It's already rough enough, but now they're going deep underground and so it's it's super scary who knows what sort of you know urchin is dwelling you know yeah. down there in the depths i mean was it is it even going to be human yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right? and it is cool we didn't mention but being set in the bronx which is really it's the birthplace of hip-hop you know south yeah. bronx i mean some maybe west bronx but like south bronx pretty much yeah that's it that's ground zero yeah so they were right there and um it's an interesting snapshot because of course, you know, having been filmed in 83, this is long before, you know, Giuliani and anyone like came in to clean it up. And so you still hear stories once in a while of people talking about what old, you know, New York used to be like and how rough it is. Uh, but I mean, if you've, you know, visited New York City at all, uh, like if, if your first time going to New York was like 1990 or, or later, you have a certain image in your head of, of what, New York is like, and it's just some, you know, big urban kind of playground. Uh, and so to see, uh, to go back and see these images, and they're, it's quite well documented of it just being this unbelievably bleak, war-torn 
looking like it, you know, it looks like images I remember seeing when I was a kid in the news of like Beirut or something like that, just bombed yeah. out, just rubble, rubble everywhere. And uh, I'm sure for some, you know, people who kind of saw this movie later, it must be quite unbelievable to see images of, of you know, New York looking like that. Yeah, and well, Melly Mel touches on it, and I mean, it's kind of like what the message is about, really. That's right. You know, yeah. and it really brings that, yeah, that it's it's so vivid. I will say, seeing those subway cars, like right off the top, too, like covered in paint, it just looks amazing. Right? Yeah, it does. And that's like, you know, it makes me think of like Warriors or like anything else, like early 80s, late 70s New York. Like, And another subplot in the movie is that uh, the guys... Uh, see an almost, you know, mythical, all white, perfectly clean, pristine subway car, and they're dying to, you know, hit this thing, and uh, and and it is quite striking to see when everything else is just, you know, so grim and dark and grungy and everything else, and then this one perfectly. So clean, clean, pristine. You know, car rolls through. You can understand the excitement. Oh yeah, it's like the holy grail too. And yeah. Remo, who is all about you know sharing art and like brightening stuff up with with art. And that's so that's like a major thing that comes up for Remo is him fighting with his dad, yeah. who doesn't believe in what he's doing. But yeah. Remo's got this gift, and he just wants to share it. And he wants his dad, like that. You know, they're clearly not getting along in their relationship, and. You know, this is this is a, a source of pain for you know Ramo, uh, and not only does it seem that he desires to mend his relationship with his father, but he would also very much like for his father to acknowledge and maybe even appreciate his his art, and invites him even like you know to to look at it. But it, the old man seems to have no interest. Yeah. Which is, I mean, and that's like what a classic thing that anybody wants, of, you yeah. know, to get their parent to appreciate, yeah. you know, what they do. So that's, you know, there's there's that drama aspect to the yes, film. Yes, indeed. Uh, another major parent, the mom. So Kenny and Lee's mom. Yeah. She drops some some science. You know, she has a line that kind of stuck with me. She says, "Keep your dreams, but get something to fall back on." Because they're all caught up in, you know, and she doesn't want them getting caught up and getting into trouble. And obviously, right. their super, her sons are very talented artists. But we we learned that there was an older brother who died. Uh, I don't know if it's ever really explicitly explained what happened, but you just get the sense that he got caught up in street life and uh, didn't make it out. And um, another small detail that I picked up on in the movie that I don't think I would have picked up on when I was a kid. Uh, but what's interesting is that in this household, um, you see pictures of Malcolm X and, you know, various, uh, for lack of a better term, sort of black power imagery on the walls of this house. Uh, so you get the sense that these two kids, um, you know, have a, a, a very strong figure in their, in their mother kind of running that household. And so she's no nonsense. She wants good things for the kids. She seems to a degree supportive of their pursuits and what they're doing, but yeah, you know, she wants, you know, education is important and she yeah. wants them to, uh, yeah, she says, uh, have something to fall back on. She's great. Well, when she breaks the younger one out of jail, or not break him out, but bails him out of jail, yeah. and she argues with the cop and says, look, there's way worse things these kids could be doing than dancing. Yeah, yeah right. When they get arrested a bit later on. Um, so yeah, New York really is kind of the star 
in a lot of ways of this film, like with the culture and the music and the fashion, um, we get to see some amazing New York venues, right? Yeah. The Roxy. Yes. And this is kind of where we see our first big, like, superstar of the time, because Soul Sonic Force, Africa Bambada mm-hmm. are there performing. And, of course, there's, there's fashion right there, right? <laughs> I mean, that was the thing <laughs> that I remembered about the movie, but I was struck by it all over again watching this. And this would have been right at the tail end of that, where people involved in the culture were, were still trying to figure out like, okay, what, what's the look? What's our look here? And something that's sort of fascinating, and I think it is attached to what you were just saying about New York City being the star of the show, is that clearly a lot of early, this early over-the-top hip-hop fashion sense was clearly informed by punk, yeah. which yeah. both forms would have come along at the same time. Uh, in in New York City, and so when you see Africa Bambata and the Soul Sonic Force, and and for that matter, the Furious Five, and not just in this movie, but other early uh, images we have of them, it's like a lot of leather and and studs, and it's kind of punky, but it's also kind of inspired by like you know what would have been the looks of like the old street gangs, but it's like it's flashy, uh, yeah. it's flamboyant and way over the top. There's some strong looks, animal fur and like pink thongs. Oh yeah, <laughs> studs, flamboyant. Yeah. Like yeah, I said, yeah. you know, Run DMC is really credited with changing all of that, and they would have only just been coming along. At the same time, right, 1983, I think, is when Run DMC came along. And so, like I said, seeing this with, like, the, uh, you know, like, you know, the raccoon tails and everything yeah, else yeah. that was going on, this this would have been, like, the last days of that kind of look. If you look at the album cover for The Message by Grandmaster Flash and The, and the Furious Five, for example, you get a, a real good look at some of these early uh, fashions. And, it was uh, similar to almost, like, village people in different absolutely you know, yeah it's more like a street a tougher version of village people but then so that was that was one thing and i remember seeing that as a kid and not questioning it at all funny enough and i think my thinking which was probably what everyone else's thinking was at the time is like well you're on stage and so you're supposed to be a rock star and have a look and that was you know one thing and it was flamboyant and it was over the top but in the same breath, I think it's worth mentioning that among the dancers and so on, there's their fashion, which is classic b-boy fashion, which I think has dated extremely well. In fact, there's a part of me that feels like it never really it went never out of left. fashion. Yeah. Oh yeah, all the tracksuits and yeah, yeah, uh, Adidas, still, yeah. still referenced mm-hmm. all the time. And so, for as much as there's some wacky looks in this movie there are some great looks too great looks just i mean just classic you know b-boy looks and i i didn't look too close in the credits to see who was you know in charge of costuming for this but um you you get the sense that if i had to guess it was probably left to uh you know those those involved you know africa bambada looked like what he normally, you know, looked like. So you don't get the sense that the wardrobe department was putting him up to wearing that. And same with the B-Boys. That's what B-Boys wore back then. So they got that right. And uh, those B-Boy looks, I mean, it's just, it's so good. So good. And so this, the Roxy is where we have that first major battle between 
the Beat Street Breakers and Rocksteady. Yeah. And this was cool because like each dance or one after another, they're just crushing it, killing mills of pop and locks. Like everything was just like unbelievable. And killing Rocksteady it. obviously are just like you know legendary. Yeah. And the New York City Breakers, like it's just phenomenal. I uh, someone told me a story once. And maybe you know, maybe I heard it from you. I that crazy legs when he does that move where he, he mm-hmm. like the kind of the finale, yeah, and he takes off his shoes while yes. he's spinning, and it happens so fast. Unless you're looking for it, you don't even notice him doing it. And then he like he you know gets into his pose and he's like he goes gold. into his freeze and his shoes are on his hands. And it's, it's funny you mention that. Because I remember watching this movie when I was a kid, and I didn't notice it happening as it happened. I just saw him in his freeze. I was like, whoa, his shoes are on his hands. How the hell did that happen? And so funny enough, that memory for me was so indelible that when I'm watching the movie again a few days ago, I was watching that like a hawk. Like, where and how does this happen? And I made a point. Like, I have to see what, you know? All these years later, I wanted to really analyze how did he do that? And he does it sooner than you think. Yes. Like, because he's still kind of spinning a little bit. And as he's like moving his, his, as I'm, you know, motioning badly (laughs) (laughs) to the listeners at home. Like, very graceful. This is where, you know, but this is how he did it. Yeah. I'm reenacting it exactly (laughs) well on the mic right now, uh, audience. Uh, but that seems crazy. But apparently, that was the first time he'd ever tried it, and they caught it. Oh, That's really? The take they used in the film. So wow. somebody told me that years ago, huh. and I couldn't find uh, any info online to you know back that to up. back that yeah. up. But if if somebody listening remembers telling me that, it was uh, yeah, it's, it's pretty amazing. <laughs> it is amazing, and. Um, you know, we'll we'll kind of come back to this later. There there are certain things in the movie that um, don't necessarily uh, you know age particularly well, but the dancing certainly does. It's still impressive. It's still really uh, you know mind blowing uh, to watch, and uh, you know that art form has certainly evolved through the years, um, and it you know requires probably even more like, you know, strength and athleticism, uh, you know, now than it ever did and even back then, but still somehow watching it. Uh, and, uh, I mean, if I were to try to do the math and we're talking 35 years or something like that between now and when that movie was made ish in that ballpark. Yeah. And, um, it's, but it's still impressive. You still watch it and think like, holy smokes, like, you know, it was good then it's still like good. Now it holds up. It's really good. Yeah, it's phenomenal. Whereas some of the other stuff, like some of the scratching, and you're like, well, there's, you know, <laughs> turntablism yeah. has evolved it quite a bit. Evolved MC, way, you know, you know, way past. Yeah. yeah, so some aspects of the, um, you know, overall, uh, you know, art, art form of, of hip-hop in its, you know, various um, applications um, were, um, you know, they were kind of in their infancy, Largely, uh, in 1983, the turntablism aspect in particular and emceeing still wasn't like, you know, super uh, evolved, but the, but the b-boying was really quite advanced. Yeah. And uh, interestingly, and this is getting in the weeds a little bit, but it would have been the element of, of hip-hop culture that would have been around the longest, so had the longest time to evolve to that point. Right, right. Um, and a big thing, too, that I did really like about this movie and sometimes gets lost with, you know, major Hollywood films and stuff, the core, like, 
the main group of friends, they're, they were really all about respecting the culture. And yeah. so anytime someone had a problem, whether it was biting or somebody like trying to like use this to like capitalize for commercialism, like with the video, the scene I think we're yeah, about to right. get into, it, it really was respecting the culture is the core of this film, which I think is a big thing that stands up today. And that's, and like, yeah, that's definitely cool. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting that you know, that code is so strong among our, you know, sort of core, um, you know, the the heroes of our uh, film here, which that that made me feel particularly nostalgic watching because, you know, a lot of those sort of old unwritten rules or that old code, I mean, it just so doesn't exist anymore. Uh, And so, um, yeah, just, you know, the thought of like the day, and it's captured so well in this film that the idea of of biting, borrowing someone else's idea was just the number one cardinal sin. Nothing worse than you know biting, and uh, that meant you know so much, you know, to them. Exactly. Uh, taking someone else's work or ruining someone else's work, you know, whatever. Well, yeah, else. ruining like spit, which was just you bring that up. It's perfect. Like so, spit is sort of this villain graffiti artist who goes around and he's got a an axe to grind against other graph writers and yeah. he goes, goes over the their movie. work. Yeah. yeah. Just totally ruining, like literally spitting on their work. Right. And that obviously comes to a, a head uh, towards the end of the film. Um, but that's, yeah, that's a big thing in like the disrespect thing. And he's kind of in, based on a Styles, Style Wars character, Cap. Exactly. Yeah. And... Um, there's a lot that we could say about that aspect of, of the movie and the whole plot, but um, at one point in the movie, someone takes the time to explain the difference between like a, a tag and as, as they refer to it over and over again in the movie, a, a burner, sort of like a bigger piece. Um, and I, they mentioned specifically, as, as I recall, I think it's phase two. Right. Uh, who is an actual graffiti yeah, legend. A, yeah. a legendary, uh, you know, kind of pioneering uh, graffiti artist. Uh, and we'll come back to this, I'm sure. But his name is in the credits uh, in the movie. So I think they actually kind of got him on board to make sure that they were doing that aspect of things right, uh, which is interesting. But it's cool. I mean, there's some real interesting little history lessons that you get along along the way. But... Um, uh, so anyway, to, to to keep things on track, yeah, you know, maintaining this sort of like you know code uh, among these guys is super important, which is very a very cool part of the movie. Right on, and that takes us to this scene. So after the Roxy event, uh, I guess, um, oh, and we did Ray Dong Chong is introduced here, uh, and Kenny kind of sees her, and they lock eyes, and oh, they have a bit of a moment. There's something happening, but yeah. we learn that she is a, a dancer in this big professional New York uh, dance company, art company, yep. and uh, she meets Lee, the yep. b-boy, and invites him to come to this dance. Uh, I guess it's like a, a TV audition or, or yeah, something. Yeah. yeah, and so the whole crew shows up and Charlie's like, I'm going to manage you, you know, if they want you for TV. It's kind of glossed over. You're not really clear what this is. Is he just coming to like show off for this dance troupe or is he trying to get a part in a TV show? Um, but they videotape him. Yeah. And things go from like this lighthearted, positive, you know, breakdancing display in front of all these like modern and jazz dancers 
And it just escalates super fast. Takes a turn <laughs> real quick. <laughs> like, what happens? Yeah. You look away for one second, and then uh, Kenny is fighting with the, yeah. the choreographers. So he, he feels that they're being exploited, uh, taken advantage of. Um, as Lee is dancing, there's a quick shot where we see, uh, you know, that uh, not only is he being filmed, but it's, it's being displayed on a monitor. There's a very old-looking uh, TV there and I guess there's something about that that he doesn't like because he's wondering wait a minute what are you going to do with this tape and you know we don't want you you know capitalizing on on what we're doing and so there uh, a a fight breaks out over this over this this tape and how everyone's you know talents are being used or exploited or whatever and so all of a sudden things get very testy and they want that tape they don't they don't they're not going to leave there uh, with uh, and leave that tape uh, behind, but the you know the the professional dancers they don't want to give up the tape, and uh, I think it's Can Eater who winds up. Uh, <laughs> I think he, the he's tape. the one. He just muscles his way through. He finds the VCR or whatever, <laughs> hits eject. He just he just grabs it. Next thing we know, it's like hey, he's got it in his hand. Let's get out of here, uh, kind of thing. And so, right when we think that there might be a little spark between Radon Chong's character and, uh, and and Double K. What do you remember what she's her Tracy, yeah, Tracy. Tracy. So yeah. Tracy and Double K, we think, mm-hmm. "Oh, maybe there's uh, something here, but now all of a sudden, uh, you know, there's there's some real tension." And uh, and so they walk away from this um, theater that they're in. Yeah, it looked like a giant church or something. Something. Um, pretty cool, though. A nice, pretty cool. huge, epic, old New York building. Yeah. I'd like to know where that was. Uh, but they walk out of there with that tape and uh, in a huff. They're, uh, you know, they don't like what just happened. And it's not really clear what just happened. Yeah, it's just like, <laughs> it's, it's almost but, like someone, maybe somebody consulting on the film said, listen, we got to make sure that we have a message in this movie about, like, don't exploit the culture. Because, yeah. like, with this film, and later on when uh, when Melly, Melly, uh, Melly Mel performs, there's uh, a moment that I was like, okay, cool. Like, he's using this as a platform to really get a message out, which is great. Yeah. Um, there's, it does feel like we wanted to make sure that we aren't exploiting the culture by even just making this movie, so let's have our characters really stand up yeah. for it right. in, in the scenes. So that's why, because this scene is very much like, what? Like... What just happened? What, why it's not really even necessary to be in the film. You're but, right. Um, but Tracy does come around. She comes over the next day and um, yeah. and and has and meets up with Kenny and yeah. There's and a little st- confrontation there. Yeah. She wants to clear the air. Uh, she wants to know like what's the problem? What just what just happened here? And it, it seems to me that he kind of makes her see things his way. Um. And uh, and then uh, you know, kind of lays down a challenge at her feet, like, well, if you're if you really care and you're serious about this, are you willing to go into the danger zone, right? And really live this hip hop, like, if you want to be a part, yeah, you want to, yeah, come see, because she wants to know where Lee is, and uh, older brother, you know, Kenny doesn't say, but he alludes to the fact that he's you know somewhere. Uh, dangerous. So if you really want to talk to him, uh, you know, you got to have the guts kind of thing to follow me. I can take you to where he's going to go, but it's not for the faint of heart. 
which as a kid watching this is really thrilling. Yeah. You like you're just getting like, oh man, this is like, yeah, I want to find this like underground life. Like what's going on? Where's all the action really happening? Like where is art and culture really thriving and growing? Like l- bring me to that. And that's yeah. so Tracy is that's kind of like our entry point yeah. for the outsider into this world. Um and then speaking just of being a kid and like watching this cuz you know, I'm transported to being a kid watching it for the first time. I remember Kenny and Lee's bedroom and just the yeah. the assortment of like mismatched gear and I like I had that like I would piece together like old Radio Shack tape decks and like exactly. realistic mixer and my parents turntable and yeah. just all this crap and dub tapes and figure out how to like record audio off of VHS tapes and do you know all the mishmash of yeah. electronics that we had and and in a lot of ways, I'm like, oh man, I must have seen that in this movie, and like that's how. Yeah. Or we just knew somehow, like you just mess around with this gear, and oh, maybe if I try this cable, and this will patch me through here. Yeah. Um, there is one thing about the bedroom I did notice: all the vinyls next to a radiator, <laughs> which I did not think was wise, and as, right because I've had vinyl me- uh, melt before. <laughs> right next to the bed as well, and there's a scene where. I guess it's it's the night Kenny kind of comes home, kind of you know after the sun has come up, and what what's his face? The manager dude is in his bed. He kind of oh, yeah, crashed Charlie. there. <laughs> Charlie's there, and uh, he kind of finds out by surprise. He kind of pulls back the sheets, and there they are, and they kind of start wrestling a little, <laughs> a little bit, and they're like bumping up against like the records. And I'm thinking, oh my god, like you're gonna you're destroying the jackets of these <laughs> records. Like you know what are you doing? Um, I feel like we should mention for anyone listening, we kind of alluded to the idea that, uh, you know, Kenny was going to take Tracy to this dangerous place. They go down into the subway to a platform, and then when no one's looking, they run down the tunnel to what appears to be an abandoned station, no longer used, and they're down there uh, putting up a big piece. Lee's helping Ramo uh, with a large... uh, you know, a burner, a burner that they're working on. I like on that it was a group effort. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, it seems as though because it was so big and like tall, it was going to go all the way up to the ceiling on this wall. They needed someone small like Lee just to go on someone's shoulder so he could reach up to the to the very top. That seemed to be his main role uh, in this particular uh, uh, part. But yeah, so they're running through the tunnels, and of course, there's the fear of like a train coming and so on, and so. Uh, you know, that was like a little bit of, uh, you know, interesting drama as well. Uh, but as they're running down through the tunnels, there is a moment where a train is coming. And so they have to sort of get off the track and, and seek a little shelter. And that's where Double K and Tracy get real close. And they're face to face and they're sort of wedged up against a wall as the train passes. And that's uh, where for the first time you really get the sense like, whoa, sparks are really starting to fly here. Yeah. Like, uh, they might kiss right here. Oh, man. And they don't, but they're close. They were close. <laughs> uh, but then lurking in the shadows. Spit. He's there. Yeah. Ready to spit all over their hard work. Yeah, yeah. So uh, they just finish this big, you know, beautiful piece, and then they hear something, and once again, spit is lurking, and Ray Mo is ticked because they don't even realize that he's over on the other side of where they're working and is already destroying work. The paint probably hadn't even dried yet on what they were just doing. And there's Spit just 
you know, around the corner from where they're working. He's already going over uh, their work, and that's and that's it, which you know leads to uh, you know kind of the climax of of the movie in a sense. Yeah, and how does he keep finding them? Man, he's just got some kind of sixth <laughs> sense for, uh, you know, the spitz sense. Yeah, <laughs> spitz sense. He just knows how to how to find these guys. Maybe he's just got an v- extremely sensitive nose for like paint fumes or yeah. something like that, and just follows them wherever you know wherever there's fresh paint. He's using a Krylon number three green. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so yeah, Raymo is 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 uh, pissed. He's not going to take it anymore. He has now. He's snapped because Spit has already gone over his work on numerous occasions. He's vowed that he's going to get this guy at some point anyway, and now he finally sees him, and so he takes off after him down the tracks. Oh, this is actually, this is not... Am I jumping ahead? That You jumped ahead, but that's okay. That's all right. Yeah. He, I think he sees him one more time. Oh, you're right. This is just a glimpse. Yeah. In fact, I'm not even sure they saw him, because they, f- they, they yeah. hear something, Yeah. and they think, we better get out of here, because what if it's you know transit cops or something? And so they take off. They figure you know it's not safe. And then a moment later, after they've cleared out, Spit emerges from the shadows. That's what it is. Yeah. I've jumped ahead a little bit. No, and, and he's like, who is this mysterious villain? Yes. Um, it's yeah. cool how he's kind of like, his specter is kind of yeah, in the yeah. background of the film. It's kind of it, it, it's kind of cool. He is, a, you know, a mysterious, it's like, you know, playing on that old Hollywood, you know, idea of, uh, you know, the monster being even more scary when you don't. You don't see it, mm-hmm. you know, and so we don't see a lot of, uh, of of spit. He's just this, you know, monster in the shadows kind yeah. of thing. Yeah. So Kenny, what I noticed, so Kenny goes on this date now after they they leave the the painting. Kenny's yeah. like, well, I got to go off with uh, Tracy now, and they kind of have a nice little romantical walk in the snow, and it's it's yeah. just very lovely. And you know, he's kind of a respectful guy. He's a good you know, like. That's one thing that really stood out to me this time through. It's like, oh yeah, Kenny's a good character. Like he's good to his friends. He's good to Tracy. He stands up for what he believes in. He looks out for his younger brother and he, you know, he, he does listen to his mom in, in a lot of ways, but he's also very driven to pursue his art and do it the way he wants to do it. And he's just confident in his skills and what he wants to do. And of course, Charlie is like, all right, let me hook you up with these gigs. So he hooks him up with a gig at Burning Spear. Which, right, uh, where he gets to meet Cool Herc, and I was like, "Oh man, yeah. we're really gonna see Cool Herc." Then, sure enough, there he is. There you go, the Godfather, right there. Yeah, um, which is pretty cool. So it's it's great to see that they did get you know again more hip hop royalty in this film. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, they say it all goes back to him. He's kind of the guy that that started it all, and so that's a, a very cool detail uh, in the movie. It's not like it's a big part for. You know, Cool Herc, he, you know, has a few uh, lines of dialogue in, in the whole thing. But, um, you know, he's, he's the guy. He's, he's sort of, uh, you know, the ticket to the, to the big time if he can just, you know, kind of get this uh, gig. And um, it is cool because, you know, in the early days of hip-hop, you would hear Cool Herc referenced all the time. And, you know, people would sort of sing his, his praises as one of the uh, pioneers. But I'm sure for a lot of people watching this movie, it would have been the first time actually seeing him, you know, because he never, although he's, you know, credited as, as the guy who, for all intents and purposes, invented the art form, he never went on uh, himself to kind of become like a star. You know what I mean? He was, he was never really in a, in a group, never made a record. 
per se or anything like that. Yeah. Uh, so he wasn't really a, a figure that you saw much. You heard about him a lot, and then but there he was. I'm trying to remember if it might have been, you know, the first time I ever laid eyes on on Cool Herc. But if it wasn't, it would have been, you know, in in the first you know handful of times talking about you know, uh, sort of you know, mythical and mysterious figures. I mean, this he was like you know the real deal. Like wow, there he is. I mean, like a god type figure. Absolutely, yeah. That's and he's him. Pretty cool and confident on camera. And it's just yeah. like that's him. And yeah, you're probably right. That's probably the first time I ever saw him. And because you don't, you're right. Because you think of like, well, the message. That's a big like when you think like old old school hip hop videos. Um, maybe Cool Herc just like rocking a party or something. Like there's early footage, but not. Yeah, not that much. Another interesting appearance. So the Treacherous Three show yeah, up in this right. for the Christmas wrap. Yeah, uh, which uh, you know there might be some objectionable uh, content in the lyrics, but yeah, but pretty, it's pretty awesome. And Cool Modi, Treacherous Three, Cool Modi, La Sunshine, uh, Special K, and Dunn yeah. Fresh beatboxing. Yeah, I mean it's, it's phenomenal. Kind of amazing. Yeah. And um, it's it's a really cool, you know, little performance or so. They, you know, I mean, they put together this very this sort of theatrical, almost like kabuki you know, kind of <laughs> yeah, performance exactly. of their song, and it's very sort of stripped down. And in a sense, I feel like it's it's the most kind of like legit rap performance that we kind of you know see in the in the movie in a lot of ways, especially with the appearance of Dougie Fresh. Who made his entrance in a rather unfortunate way <laughs> that he Showing had to up. like crawl through Cool Modi's legs? <laughs> I, really super weird. But um, oh, don't break kayfabe. I mean, that was behind the scene. <laughs> but uh, something stood out to me, um, you know, watching this performance again for the first time in a long time. I think, and I dug into this a little bit the other night, but I think it might have been the first time I heard the F word in a rap of any kind. And um, I mean, especially in terms of, you know, like if, if you're not including like, you know, the old tapes that circulated of like live hip hop performances from the 70s and, and stuff like this, like this is like, you know, a, a recorded thing, like, a, you know, um, and, you know, I remember the first time I was sort of like otherwise shocked by language in a rap song would have been the first time I heard Lottie Dottie by Dougie Fresh and Slick Rick. But this was before that. And so, you know, there's some, there's, uh, you know, a fair amount of like salty language in this. And I remember you know, being really kind of uh, affected by that when I was a kid seeing this for the first time because when you listen to really all the hip-hop that was made, hip-hop records that were recorded to that point between 1979 and 1983, it was all very, like, fun and kind of innocent and, like, happy, you know? Like, come on, everybody, let's have fun! Uh, right, like all of it. Exactly. I, I mean, I love it. Like, and then basketball uh, is my favorite sport. Yeah, yeah. Like it was all super, like G rated, all of it. And then um, here is this underground performance, and with like suitably underground language, 
if you will. You know, Kumo D is, you know, cussing in in the in it's this treacherous performance. It is treacherous, and I think it's the first time I heard that. And uh, you know, it it kind of made uh, the music, you know, like a little bit dangerous for me, and probably for a lot of people. You know, seeing. Uh, you know, that movie for the first time, like for the first time, it kind of made rap music like, whoa, this is like, it's not just kid stuff, you know? Yeah, and it's heightened by the fact that they are doing this, like you said, kind of a kabuki theatrical performance with their heads just sticking through this wall. Yeah. And then it's like, whoa, and you think, oh, these are kind of like three friendly faces, and then the guy drops an F-bomb, and it definitely does cut through, especially... With the rest of the script of the film, there's not that much. Like it, it maintains a very street vibe yeah. to the film without really a lot of swearing or anything. No. I mean, I I didn't even think to look what this what this film is is rated, but this particular scene and performance aside, I mean, you know, there's a bit of violence, Ramo. And again, we haven't quite gotten there yet, but the, you know, Ramo meets his his his, his fate uh, ultimately. Um, you know, there's you know there's a a bit of heaviness in the movie, but like you know, otherwise in terms of like language or whatever else, I mean, it's almost a G-rated you know kind of kind of movie, with the uh, exception of this one part, which really kind of you know gave you the sense like, okay, this is like the real thing, like this is some real underground you know kind of stuff we're seeing here, even if. The idea of a performance like this happening in an underground setting is not necessarily the you know the most realistic thing. And then they've got dancers who come out who are like wearing like full. They've got their whole nutcracker yeah. like <laughs> kind of costumes yeah. in the in the you know just to, in the name of the you know in the spirit of the season. Um, but uh, but I mean, for as sort of you know funny and strange as it is, like it's cool as hell. You Super know, cool. yeah, it's very cool. Um, you know, in a, in a lot of ways, when I think at the age I was when I first saw this movie, and there are a lot of musical performances uh, in this movie, but that was my favorite. I think when I was a kid, this treacherous three, Santa's rap. Absolutely, thing. yeah, and definitely being an MC, it's like that's what stands out to you. It's like, okay, here's a chance, and these they're all dope rappers. Like really cool dope. D, obviously, treacherous you know. three was, I mean, you know, kind of the best. At the time, and uh, as a side note, you know, because we alluded kind of early on that the, the soundtrack for this record was was big for many years, and this is how you and I, you know, would have met maybe in a in a sense when our orbits, you know, first collided through my old radio show. The and yeah, every year at Christmas time, I you know I played Santa's rap. You had to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You had, it was one of the very few sort of like Christmas themed you know, rap songs out there. So I broke out the Beat Street soundtrack every year at Christmas through the 90s on my old radio show. That's great. He's no G.I. Joe. He's a G.I. jerk. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> deep. That was a deep cut. As a G.I. Joe fan, I was like, oh, man, I don't want a G.I. jerk action figure. <laughs> yeah. And I had, when I was uh, a kid, that G.I. Joe with the Kung Fu grip. I had that very G.I. Joe that they're talking about in that uh, thing. So, uh, and I, lo- it and was I, real. I loved it, you yeah. know. So, yeah, the fact that they're kind of giving G.I. Joe a hard time. Was, uh, <laughs> yeah, it did cut, it cut deep. You're right. And it was pointed out uh, 
cool modis not wearing sunglasses because later on he would always be you think of him like if i close my eyes and think cool modia he's got sunglasses on i mean <laughs> you know his his eyes were seen so seldom um it w- it's sort of a weird in fact not without the glasses like he's almost unrecognizable in a sense i think you know the glasses were really a a, a part of um you know his whole like solo career i remember like on the cover of his first solo album was the first time like I, I saw him with the glasses, but that became his signature thing. And from that point forward, you never saw him without them. And so to go back to pre-solo Kumo D days and see him without the glasses, there's really something almost shocking about it. Yeah. It's like, yeah. whoa, there's Kumo D's face. You know, just there it is. And, uh, and uh, he's one of those guys, it's funny because there's this performance that we're, we're really stuck on here in a sense but you only see his face they're you know performing with this sort of like black screen with the holes cut out so there's just their faces and there's something very theatrical about it but even just seeing his face with the other two guys somehow it's very clear like Kumo D is the star he really exuded star power and just like the appearance of his face through the thing it's like man this guy's got it you know yeah he was like just clearly and Special K, you know, for those who are really deeply into it, real nerds will say, like, he was one of the first real technical, you know, rappers. He was an excellent, excellent rapper. But as far as star power goes, I mean, there's there's no uh, mystery as to why out of the group it was Kumo D who went on to be the star because the talent was there, but he had star power. And just seeing his face is like, wow, yeah, that guy, he's the guy, right? Like, he was just, he exuded... There was something just very charismatic about even just seeing his face. You just knew right away, like, yeah, this this is the guy right here. Absolutely. And you could almost argue that he, out of all the rappers in this movie, he kind of kept putting stuff out the longest after Beat Street. I mean, like, yep. obviously, not to take away from anyone else, but... No, yeah, he, he, he would have had the biggest yeah. career. Yeah. I, I think it's probably safe to say, yeah. 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 That's awesome. Yeah. So the Christmas rap performance goes on, uh, and then uh, eventually, basically, Cool Herc winds up hiring Double K. Yes, he does. <laughs> and a thing that I was struck by this particular moment in the movie is that when Double K kind of gets the good news, the first thing he does is like puts on a slow jam in the in the club. He's like happy, <laughs> and so he wants to dance with Tracy. And so he puts on a slow jam and like Cool Herc has barely even like walked out of the room. <laughs> and in my mind, I was imagining him turning right around. I was like, you know what? On second thought, forget it. You're fired. What the hell are you doing? <laughs> it's like Saturday night. The party's at its peak and you put on a <laughs> waltz. <laughs> oh, man. It's good stuff. Anyway. Yeah, was, he gets the job. simpler times. The important know? thing is he got the job. He got the job. He got yeah. the job. Yeah. But this isn't the end to uh, to him getting jobs, as, as we'll see soon. But first, right. we do a quick little pit stop, and we meet Ramo's dad, yeah. who's, uh, I guess, sort of like an auto mechanic. or Man's man, kind of tough, man tough dude. Man's man, away. And uh, we should note that Ramo's, he has a, a baby, yeah. and his girlfriend uh, lives at her home, and there's, there's problems at her home, yeah. so they've had a lot of... You know, issues with their relationship. He's living with his dad, and they're both kind of struggling with their current living situation. And they have, they express that they really want to get out there on their own somehow. And the question to this point has been, well, but how, like how? Where would we go? 
how are we going to do this? But clearly, it, it's what they want to do. You know, they want to, you know, kind of run away together. Kind of thing. And yeah. Ramo's dad is like, well, you got to be a man. You know, you can't, your girlfriend can't move in with us. You're not married. And, you know, if you're a real man, you can take care of your family. To which Ramo says, well, why is your definition of a man the only you know, the only one, which I thought was a kind of an interesting response yeah. because as far as Ramo is concerned with everything he's doing, it like, it does make him a man. So is, is he and the old man don't see eye to eye on this whatsoever. So it's, uh, yeah, it's, it, it becomes abundantly clear, um, that they're really not going to get help, uh, from anyone else. It's kind of up to them. So he's, Ramo's like, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? Uh, so he goes off. Uh, we do cut back. I guess this is about now where uh, Charlie's hustling to get Kenny seen in uh, at the Roxy. Yeah. So we go through a whole uh, audition process. Extended. <laughs> yeah. They're, so they're holding That's auditions. The key word. <laughs> they're holding auditions at the Roxy. And uh, this is, you know, the big time. This is pretty much, you know, if if Double K is going to reach the top, well, you know, this is the top of the the mountain. If he can get a, you know, a gig at the Roxy, and uh, so yeah, they go out uh, to auditions, and uh, we have the opportunity to <laughs> to see everyone's audition. We're treated to a delightful bunch. Yeah, a real mix. Andy B. Bad on the guitar. Andy B. Bad. <laughs> and his performance is particularly confusing because <laughs> I'm watching this thinking, is this supposed to be funny or not? Like, is he supposed to be some sort of like comic relief or are we supposed to take this seriously? And it really at no no point does it ever become clear for me at all. But he is sort of like... Um, like a punk almost, but like with, you know, electro beats. But it's just a, a a solo guy on stage with like a leather jacket and a guitar. And he's like doing his thing and seemingly like, you know, very earnestly. And so it's not like over the top enough to be clearly meant to be, you know, comic relief or something to be set up like for ridicule. Although clearly... Our friends who are at the audition are, they're not too into it. No, and he stands out because everyone else are, you know, hip-hop acts or R&B and yeah. some b-boying. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but, uh, you know, pretty much everyone else who performs is, um, yeah, sort of, uh, you know, freestyle, R&B, kind of hip-hop, you know, whatever, uh, you know, sort of performer. One thing that I'll, I'll mention now I suppose, and maybe this is something that we would have touched on later anyhow. But what really struck me, and I think I started really thinking about it at this particular point in the film, which I think is interesting and great and, and maybe even important, and one of the things that I'm really kind of grateful to this film for doing is highlighting Puerto Ricans' contribution to hip hop and everything that was going on in, in New York City at the time. Because uh, in a lot of ways, I think that aspect of, of hip hop history and, and culture gets overlooked 
it's not discussed enough, but there's a lot of Puerto Rican pride in this movie. And uh, a lot of the performers and stars of, of the movie uh, or whatever, and uh, kind of across the board, among the people we see audition at the Roxy, certainly among the B-boys who we see dancing throughout the movie, or whatever, there's a lot of Puerto Ricans, um, which is really cool. Yeah. It's a great snapshot of that. Um, you know, Puerto Ricans in, in New York City, Latin kids in general, made a, a gigantic contribution to early hip-hop culture, and that's often uh, forgotten. And so that's, in my mind, something that's really cool about this movie, actually. 100%, yeah. Yeah. Um, now, Andy B. Bad, unfortunately, not Roxy material. Uh, no, it doesn't uh, seem <laughs> as though he's going to uh, make the cut, but... Uh, yeah, he he's he's among them, and and it probably would have been hard for a, a guy like him to to you know find a, a footing anywhere. You get the sense that poor Andy B. Bad's probably been auditioning all over New York City because he appears to be a, a guy of Puerto Rican background himself, uh, but he's stuck somewhere between punk rock and hip hop, and he doesn't even have any bandmates. It's just him up there with his guitar, kind of going nuts and trying to figure out what his sound is supposed to be and might not even necessarily be the most talented uh, dude or whatever, but uh, it's it's clear he's not uh, he's not, he's not going to make the cut. No. He's not going to get the job. I mean, who knows? Maybe he went on to do great things. Yeah, bigger and better things beyond the Roxy. We yeah. don't we don't know. We can only just sort of you know hope for the guy. Well, so Charlie, after seeing all these guys and girls audition, he 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 track he goes to the the director, the the head booker, yeah. and says, "Oh, I got a guy," and he's like, "He's Cool Herc's new man or something, right?" Yeah, but this is where he's. The, this is where we see Charlie's real s skill as a manager and a, and a promoter because somehow he works this guy and says, "Okay, I got the guy for you who's head and shoulders above all the talent you've seen today." And he says, "Well, where is he? Bring him on out." He's like, "Nope." <laughs> <laughs> Somehow, suddenly, Charlie's you know calling the shots. Well, if you want to see him, you're going to have to you know see him on our terms and yeah. come come see him, you know, at Burning Spear down on at, Saturday. Down, down and I'm like, Burning wait, Spear. isn't this guy normally working at the Roxy on Saturday? Like, why would yeah. he like I'll go to the the competition? Sort of bizarre, but somehow Charlie manages to work some sort of you know Jedi mind trick and actually makes this happen. Yeah, he yeah. gets him in there. Yeah. Um, just, and then real quick, just we were talking about remote Ramos Ramon, aka Ramos situation. Yeah. So all his friends come together and decide that they're gonna get an apartment for him. It's a beautiful thing. Yeah. I mean, they get like a dirty mattress off the street and they're just kind of picking up <laughs> stuff off the street and they just, you know, they they do a lot of their, you know, parties in um, you know, sort of these illegal parties in abandoned buildings and so they really seem to know their way around the abandoned buildings of the Bronx and uh, they do their best to set up a nice comfortable you know little squat for uh, Ramon and uh, his little family yeah it's a really nice thing right at the holidays it's, yeah you know, they're like Merry Christmas here and so they bring Ramon and his his baby and his partner there and I guess it's like Henry Can Eater, he lives there too now. <laughs> like he's just kind of moved into one of these buildings. It seems so. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So he's there, and I really want to know if there's like a whole other story with this guy. Yeah. Uh, I, yeah, I want to know if there's a whole other story with just got cut out. Like, I mean, yeah, there, there. You know, there should have been like, uh, yeah. Either a, I'd like to know what was on the cutting room floor, or would love to have had like a sort of a spinoff, you know, movie of the uh, adventures of of Can Eater, but an intriguing. 
uh, figure in this whole yeah. <laughs> thing. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, we'll we'll fast forward a little bit. Charlie gets uh, double K. Kenny the gig. Yep. Uh, after you know the man, the promoter comes to Burning Spear, and Cool yep. Herc's like, hey, you know, this is like poaching my talent, and yeah, but whatever. Yeah. Turns out to not be uh, you know a, a major source of. Of drama, yeah. it works out. So things are on the up and up Kenny for uh, for Kenny. Yeah, big gig, New Year's Eve. Yeah, the biggest party in New the, York. This yeah. is the, the this is the big time. This is the big show. So clearly, now you know he's been uh, anointed. He's like you know he's he's the hottest DJ in New York. Yeah, yeah. And he's uh, so things are going good. He's with Tracy now. Tracy's got this big like dance show going on, which is really the whole. It's the other side of the the drink. Dance yeah. drama coin, um, right? It's yeah, really there's... like high end jazz, modern dance kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So she's got her own uh, career uh, going, which I get the sense, and I don't know if if this is if this is true or not, but I I always got the sense that what was happening with her story is happening in Manhattan. So right. she's in the big city, she's the big time, and she's sort of like you know right there, uh, you know, in the uh, avant garde of uh, you know the dance world in uh, New York City, and so she's got her big uh, production happening as well. Yeah, and they happen to have incredible gear behind the scenes, right? <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So they're working. Um, I don't know if they're either just working out of like a big you know professional company or maybe out of you know one of the schools in in New York I, I kept getting the idea flashing into my head that you know this is either one of the big performing arts schools or like Juilliard or something like that and so among all the other facilities that she has access to in terms of dance studios rehearsal spaces and whatever else pro recording studio as well right and so she um you know, sort of helps out our hero, uh, Double K, with the opportunity to get his hands on some top-notch gear and maybe upgrade above his little bedroom setup. Yeah, what was it? was like some crazy VT sampler thing. Yeah, brand. Projects whatever you sample into computer musical notes on screen or something. Yeah, yeah. So you could, uh, yeah, it would, uh, you know, create kind of like notation for your uh, sampling work and, and so on and which uh, at first, Double K seems like, oh, this is cool. This is, you know, maybe going to be really useful. And he's given the opportunity, like, here, just get in there. You know, the guy who uh, kind of seems to be in charge of that particular uh, department opens the door to him. And rather than giving him any instructions, he just says, just go for it. Just start playing around. And within about 30 seconds, he just crashes the whole system. <laughs> uh, Double K and uh, the computer crashes. Yeah. And it just... and. Leading up to that moment, in my mind, is one of the stranger moments in the movie. And I don't know if this is supposed to be on purpose or not, but this is where uh, our our man, Double K, is, is working out on some of this new equipment and is making some of the strangest noise, <laughs> sort of like yeah. musique concrète or something. It just all of a sudden gets really weird and experimental and out there, and he's just pushing it further and yeah. further and further, and you're almost imagining smoke you know, coming out of the mainframe, and then just the computer goes... Computer screen goes blank and he's crashed the whole thing, which seems to kind of like piss off the old man who's running the studio or whatever. So that's that's a that's a moment. And but then, you know, funny enough, or as excited as Double K seemed to be a moment ago when this all happened, he's like, you know what? Screw this. 
this sucks. Yeah. <laughs> I'll just go back to my old stuff. Yeah. I got a quick vision. I don't know if you've followed any of that new kind of Wu-Tang drama that's been on TV. The Sadly, I have not. Yeah. Um, it's basically sort of like a dramatized version, uh, and yeah. RZA's been involved. But there's a scene where a young RZA discovers an SP-1200 oh, at, yeah, okay. like, uh, Wacky Wheatley's type of yeah. electronic <laughs> store. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and he's, like, sort of his mind is blown. So watching this scene again in Beat Street, it's like, oh, man, it's like, just, when you're used to using your own, the tools that you've kind of, you know, yeah. got acclimatized to, and then you you see this new computer thing, it's like, oh, how does this work? And then kind of yeah, yeah. messing around. Yeah. Although I will say, I think the SP is a little cooler than this <laughs> giant thing, but but at the time, yeah. I don't know, it's pretty crazy. I mean, you know, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting, and, you know, there's certainly parallels that could be drawn, to different things, and this all happens at, at you know what would be an interesting time in hip hop history as far as the music is concerned. Forget the fact that the you know movie probably was filmed in '83, it came out in 1984, and so to hear sample based hip hop music, we're still about two years away from that, but the technology probably would have been just developing at the time, right? And so it is interesting that you know this guy at this school or studio, wherever they are, that Tracy has has invited. Uh, Kenny too is like hey, check this out. You know, it's kind of like a primitive sampler, this sort of big hulking machine that he invites him to, you know, kind of check out. And uh, you know, just the world wasn't quite ready yet. No. Still, still a few years away before they were able to work out those kinks or whatever. But. Yeah, I think there's a similar scene in Crush Groove again, which I haven't seen in a long time. Where I think maybe Sheila E or someone's playing with a some type of s- sampler, but that would again been a year or two later. And, uh, yeah. yeah, it's funny. Like the drum machine, there's like that one drum machine that everybody used for a period. Um, yeah, um, forget what it's called, but Lindrum maybe yeah, or Lindrum something like that. Yeah, yeah. Also, for whatever reason, makes uh, what jumps into my head, and I wonder when this would have been on the timeline. I'll never forget the old episode of the Cosby Show with Stevie Wonder, and he had this keyboard where he was like sampling all the kids, the Huxtable kids. Wow, yeah. And uh, he samples their voices and puts together this funny little composition using, uh, you know, all their their voices. And so, and I wonder, I wonder if that was anywhere near the same time. But this is when they. It'd be a cool thing to actually find out. Yeah. yeah. But this is when the idea of like you know sampling was still. Uh, and it's interesting, you know, to consider. And again, this is a whole other rabbit hole we could go down, but. If you go back to 1983, the DJ and a guy like Double K in this case was still trying to figure out in a way what their place in hip hop was because in the 70s it was all about the DJ. They were, you know, breaking double copies of records, you know, for MCs to you know, rap to and for the B-boys to dance to and so on and so forth. But when the advent of records came along, and it's kind of mind-blowing to consider that we were only about four years into into it at that point when the yeah. movie was being made. And the thinking was, well, wait a minute. If we're going to make a record that's going to come out and, and be sold, we can't use other people's records. And so what are we going to do? And so you know, the first three or four years of hip-hop records not knowing what else to do at first for the first couple years it was house bands and then and it's interesting that Africa Bambata makes an appearance in this movie he had a lot to do with this uh the idea of, of making the beats electronic and 
there we see our guy Double K right there trying to figure this out. It's like, well, okay, I guess the role of the DJ is is changing, and you know the demand is being you know put on to us now to become you know these beat makers. And so we see him experimenting in his bedroom using all sorts of different sounds. We see him with his tambourine and shaker at, at one point. He's doing his best to just sort of create something original in his bedroom. And then he's in the studio trying to figure out this new technology. So I didn't really think about this when I was watching it the other day. But it does capture this really interesting moment in the evolution of the DJ where it's like, what am I supposed to do now? Yeah, And we see a little bit of that struggle with, with, with Kenny. It's like... Okay, so it's not, you know, the turntable can't be my only tool here, so I kind of have to figure out what my role is in the creation of this music now. That's kind of cool. Yeah, really cool. Yeah, because that scene where he does have the cowbell in his bedroom, you're like, what is he, Yeah, how is he fitting this in? And yeah, it's... Yeah, yeah, he's just, he's on, uh, he's just like really sort of ex- exploring, you know, the limits of, of, of what the DJ can do, and he's at times seems like willing to go way out there yeah which is sort of interesting in this in this movie he's trying out all sorts of different sounds and genres of music i mean he's you got to give him credit he's an experimental dj yeah 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 he's very creative very creative double k double k um okay so we'll we'll get back uh back on track tracy's these they're great little sidetracks so it's, it's amazing <laughs> So Tracy's show is a hit, this dance show. But uh, meanwhile, Kenny can't make the dance show because he's out with Ramo. And they have found the mystical, this is it. This is when they find the, the white, white car. Yeah. Yeah. And, that's, and so the white car, the big subway train that's untouched by anything. So pristine, clean. Yeah. Like, did the, you know, New York at the time would have been very much against as they're portrayed, like the subway, they're against graffiti, they're against all this stuff. So I find I find it interesting that the film was able to, like, hey, can we get, like, a subway car to, like, just... I was wondering yeah. the same thing. How did they do this? What was yeah. going on behind the scenes that they even just got permission or licenses to just do this, to film it and so on? That's super intriguing to me as well. I'm thinking, like, it must have been Ed Koch still who was maybe the mayor of New York City at the time, who notoriously was extremely against, you know, graffiti and really had the mindset that graffiti artists were criminals and it was just a scourge that had to be cleaned up. Meanwhile, here's this big budget movie being filmed in New York and somehow you can see clearly these are real, you know, New York Transit Authority, you know, subway cars that are being spray painted they're down on the tracks they're in stations they're filming so i mean i'm sure there's some pretty interesting stories there about how they worked all this out behind yeah, the scenes yeah you had to get some go through some serious red tape to get permits to bring, no doubt about yeah, it cuz it's fi- like again it's full film film crew actors and for how long they were down there to do it and and yeah so yeah. here we see they've found their White Whale, which in this case is a white, pristine uh, subway car. Uh, it's, you know, Ramo's kind of wildest dream come true, and so Kenny's down there helping him out. It's all hands on deck. And they're there, like, legit. Like, you see it. It kind of blew my mind to see it, too. They're painting this subway car. 
and uh, they're doing like full top to bottom, end to end burner on this thing, and it's going to be, um, you know, Ramo's masterpiece. I suspect that you know Phase Two was, uh, you know, behind the scenes, like the guy who was actually coming up with this artwork, or maybe doing it, or or designing it, or at the very least, acting as the consultant on this, but I will say that this particular piece now that at this point Ramo is working on is the most impressive piece uh, in that we see in this whole uh, movie. And it's pretty cool because he wants to uh, create this general sort of tribute to hip hop culture. It's pretty cool. Yeah, Admittedly, yeah. it's very cool. And I think the piece itself says like hip hop don't stop or something yep. like that. And then you just see like, you know, all the sort of signifiers of hip hop culture with like, you know, the shell toe Adidas shoes and I don't know, like a turntable, a microphone, just like the whole thing. It's kind of a beautiful thing he's yeah. working on. Yeah. And it says like double K in there. And yeah. It's, yeah. It's, it's great. And very much of that era too. Like that's like yeah. bang on, like that's the style of, of graph you'd see from, from 100%. Yeah. Super cool. Incredible burner. And not only that, but un, unsatisfied with this one masterwork that Ramo has put together, they decide, you know what, we're down here, we're working unmolested, let's go get the other side of the car. So once he finishes this giant piece, he's not satisfied to walk away. He now wants to work his way around to the other side of, of the car as it's sitting there in a station. They're not out in a yard. They're underground yeah, somewhere. They're, and and how they knew it was there, it's... They stumble Doesn't, onto not, it. Not know. explained, but uh, <laughs> they have they found this thing. So now Doesn't he's working matter, on yeah. the whole other other side of the car. Yeah, he's got this epic urban blank canvas to just yeah. leave his mark on until, of course, spit, spit. <laughs> shows up and extremely brazen yeah. as they're now working on one side of the car. He's over on the other side of the car, just a few feet away, destroying the work that they just completed, paint not even dry yet, and I don't know, they hear something or whatever, and they and walk they around, around, and, and, let's, and there he is. Let's just talk about Spit for a second. Like, how would you describe, like, talk about, like, the supervillain confrontation. Like, this is almost like comic book in nature of man, how, like, oh he's portrayed so, as this evil, brooding figure with the hood up. And yeah, so... Dirty. Well, he's dirty. <laughs> That's the first thing that struck me is his face is all dirty. <laughs> So <laughs> he seems to be some sort of like, you know, like graffiti hobo kind of guy <laughs> yeah. who actually just lives <laughs> underground and has sort of just no hygiene going on. Like his face is all just dirty and covered in, in grease. So you get the sense that he's just like a real kind of rat human. <laughs> um, and, uh, and just, you know, sort of seems to live with this one purpose, which is to, you know, go around and destroy everyone's work. And so he's just, uh, you know, kind of just tagging his name over everyone's sort of more uh, elaborate pieces. But this time, Ramos catches him. Yeah, you know, Ramos had enough of this guy, and now he sees him, he's face-to-face, -face, he's right there, and uh, he's not... It's not enough to just sort of chase that guy away. He's just, he has now snapped. And uh, and so he just, he's going to get him. And so he chases him down the, uh, down through the tunnels. And this is, this is quite the epic chase right now. So Kenny and Ramo are yep. running after Spit through yep. the Full subway. Tilt, yeah. Through the tunnels, uh, all the way 
up till they get to a, a point where it's not like the wee hours of the night where the trains aren't running anymore because they run all the way to the next platform where there are people standing on the platform waiting for the next train to come. And so there they are. That's where Ramo finally catches them. And so they're tussling and uh, fighting, scrapping right down it there goes, on the tracks. Yeah, I mean, this is real. Like this, You yeah. mentioned it earlier, but this was a really, definitely like as a kid, like this was a scene that totally stuck out to me. Yeah. I mean, their fists are flying. They're rolling on the tracks. You know, Kenny's watching. Like, there's bystanders just and above. a moment, a moment before, and this is a smart bit of uh, filmmaking. In particular, maybe they were thinking of anyone not from the big city or maybe New York City in particular. But just before they reach this spot at this sort of open platform where they're fighting on the street, we see a moment earlier. I think it's as as if memory serves, we see kind of. Kenny running along, and I, I don't know if he trips or drops something, but we see some sparks fly up from the third rail, reinforcing the idea that there's some real danger here because there's this electrified rail sort of running along right where they are. So that is is demonstrated a moment before he finally catches up with them when we see these sparks go flying off, off the track. So the seed is planted in our mind that there's some real danger right there. And so there they are tussling, all these bystanders watching. Can you imagine seeing that scene? And it's pretty crazy. In real life, pretty crazy. Spit grabs a can and starts spray painting Ramos in the eyes. And yeah. Like, they're like going at it. And they've both just lost their marbles. Yeah, it's pretty raw. Yeah. And then, sure enough, both of them. They get fried. They on. rolled over onto the third rail, and at the same time, both of them get electrocuted. And uh, yeah, it's quite... It's quite graphic. It's I, weirdly grisly. Yeah, yeah, it's it's quite grisly, and I remember seeing that as a as a kid, and just it kind of like you know legit scared me. Yeah, seeing that when I was a kid. Yeah. Even now, like you know, just seeing the subway here, if you see mice running along it or something, or like people, yeah. I'm like, whoa, do not go down there. I have honestly, you seen Street. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I I would have to say that that left a real indelible mark on my mind ever since because anytime. I've, you know, ridden any sort of subway system anywhere in the world. Anytime I found myself standing on a platform and looking down on the tracks, I find myself often, you know, you know, thinking uh, about like the third rail, and you know, living in this sort of like you know state of of, of caution and respect for the third rail and the the dangers involved in it. And I th honestly think it probably all goes back to the the scarring. I received in 1984 by watching our hero, Ramo, get electrocuted to death yeah. on the third rail in, in Beat Street. Maybe that's how they were allowed to film all the subway stuff. Cautionary tale. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, yeah. here, it's like educational. Yeah. Kids will watch this movie, and they're not going to go on the tracks. Could it's gonna be. It's going to deter the youth yeah. from doing this stuff, right? Because in the, they're like, oh, the yeah, let us show the graffiti guy. But don't worry, he dies in the end. Yeah, right. <laughs> like, okay. Uh, yeah, let's. you got that. Because uh, there probably had to be some wheeling and dealing going on before they filmed behind the scenes with, like, you know, the authorities in New York. And so, yeah, maybe that was how they were able to reach some sort of compromise. Like, look, we'll let you do this, but, you know, in the end, there has to be, you know, a cautionary tale that serves our 
message that, uh, you know, this is not a thing you should be doing. Yeah, it's an educational film, not just a dance drama. drama. Well, this has given us the drama. (laughs) And Ramo, who really, like, is a character throughout the film, his presence is felt, he's revered by all his friends throughout the whole movie. Yeah, and he's like... from the get-go. And and he's like, he's, he's a friendly face, he's always smiling. And, and so there's work being done to establish him as a likable kind of character. Yeah, it's like, oh, take a picture. I want to show it to my kid one day. Yeah, and uh, and we've already established the fact that you know he's a he's a young family man. He's got the drama with his old man. He's got the kid that he's trying to take care of, and his girlfriend who he's very much in love with. And, and which reminds me, there are many scenes before this happens of them. It seems like whenever they see each other, they're very in love because they kiss. <laughs> In very like gross, like just, just every chance he gets, they're just like really making out. Yeah, like just a lot of tongue, like right in front of the parents, just everything, just really like. Let's do it. Oh yeah. Well, they can't get enough of each other. That's where so. that baby came from. Yeah. <laughs> Deeply yeah. in love, these they two are really into it. each other. Yeah. Well, he dies for his art, which is pretty epic. Yeah. And really standing up, going back to that idea we talked about respecting the culture. You know, yep. Spit was not respecting the culture. He was trashing it and disrespecting. Yep. And that's, you know, it's yep. like fighting biters or fighting people disres- dis- disrespecting you. Yep. Ramo died for his art. And uh, and then we have the funeral scene. And mm-hmm. then, you know, Kenny, we're getting close to the end now, so we can just kind of fly through a couple of things. Kenny's still got this big New Year's Eve gig. Yep, and Tracy shows up. So Kenny misses her big dance show, but she's like, "Look, that's cool. Obviously, I understand." Yeah, Charlie's like, "Well, what are you gonna do?" And and Kenny's got this idea, and he's like, "I want to involve Melly Mel and the Furious Five. I want to involve you know a gospel. I want to involve like twenty five different records and this huge thing." And uh, and Charlie's kind of like, "Well, are you sure? Are you sure you want to? Yeah, do you don't want to." He says, "You don't want to turn a New Year's Eve party into a funeral." Like, to which he responds, "Like, no, it's not going to be a funeral. It's going to be a." A celebration. So this this is this is you know now setting the stage for the climax of the movie, which is that this big New Year's Eve gig, that Double K has, has gotten uh, you know for the for the big show. It's it's also going to be a tribute to his his best friend. And uh, what a tribute indeed. Yes. It starts off with him lip syncing to Melly Mel. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that was a bit odd. Yes. Uh, so he does maybe the first two verses. Just on his own, this Kenny rapping, because yeah. we've just really seen him DJ. I mean, he freestyled in the in the street a little bit, a little but bit. But yeah, suddenly now he's a, a a rapper. We just see him. The show starts. It's just solo Kenny on stage, lip syncing to uh, yeah. a huge crowd at the Roxy. Huge crowd, and it's the first few uh, yeah verses of of uh, Melly Mel's masterpiece. Beat Street Breakdown, complete with the Russ. Yeah, that's so good, though. And yeah. then when Melly Mel comes out, you can then you can see the master at work, right? Yes. Him and the Furious Five, or they're all there. Yeah. The cowboy and everybody. And yeah. 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 So epic performance by the man who, to that point, and we sung the praises of Cool Mo D earlier, but Melly Mel would have been pretty much widely regarded as the greatest living MC at that point. So here is the, you know, top guy in the in the biz uh, performing and uh, in full regalia. Oh, uh, the fashion is mind not you. to be outdone. <laughs> the whole thing. Yeah. And I mean, really, just an awesome 
presence. Yeah. Melly Mel as well. We talked about this with Cool Herc as well. I mean, just almost mythical sort of character. And um, this is now really his moment. I mean, tight shots of, you know, Melly Mel, just like, you know, see his face up close as he's performing. And maybe I'll just say at this point (coughs) that although hip-hop music has come a long way since, uh, and people seem to reevaluate all the time, when people talk about the greatest MCs of all time, there's often some recency bias. But for my money, I, I would have to say Melly Mel, in my personal books, is still the greatest rapper of all time. And not only would I say, <clears throat> you know, Melly Mel is, is the greatest of all time, but what he wrote for this song and this performance and this part of the movie might be his greatest. Yeah. I was which is saying something, too. but holy Toledo. That verse, he's dropping science. It is unreal. Yeah. And um, not only is is the rapping incredible, technically very good, but it is so heavy, so poetic, and it takes on so much. Not just you know the the story, like you know, not only paying tribute to this character in the movie, Ramo, in a beautiful poetic way, taking on the greater ills of you know, life in the in the city and the decay that's all around yeah, them. Poverty, and, corruption. And then goes on to just talk about like the problems of the world. Yeah, he's talking about the Holocaust, Hiroshima, just like humankind, world hunger. And not only in the past, yeah. but like present day, like yeah. he, he mentions like all these cities around the world. I mean, Melly Mel is like clearly just plugged in to what was going on and a great, great writer. And I think it's something that like, you know, people have a tendency to for, forget about. But like in addition to his technical ability as a rapper, he was deeply poetic. I mean, his lyrics were beautiful. Beautiful. Even just like the first, you know, few lines where he's talking about Ramo, the way he describes him and his his work. I mean, it's it's it gets it's like moving. he knew the guy. It's beautiful. Yeah. It's it's really incredible. I mean Honestly, in my mind, this is is you know one of of Melly Mel's just greatest moments and greatest performances, and um, you know just some of his 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 greatest uh, writing, and so um, I mean it's it's just something I'm I'm completely completely blown away by, um, and uh, anyway to just kind of move things along, interestingly, and this happens a lot throughout the movie. This performance of a of the song Beat Street Breakdown sort of evolves into this gospel uh, performance, uh, kind of anchored by Bernard Fowler, who yeah. was a, a, a somewhat known um, kind of gospel and R and B uh, performer. Like it just it segues directly into it. We get a lot of that throughout the film actually where as if a dj is blending the musical performances kind of you know bleed seamlessly into one another and so uh it it sort of wraps up with this big uh sort of gospel full-on silk robe performance and then like you know the b-boys come out and they're break dancing to uh you know this this gospel performance and uh it's a great tribute to Ramo. Big, beautiful tribute to Ramo. Yeah. Devil K pulled it off. And 
That is his first gig at the Roxy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that's going to be a tough one to top yeah. for him. Yeah. But yeah, just epic. I, I Everything you said, I echo with Melly Mal is just phenomenal. And I think, like I did kind of touch on it earlier, like I think he realized this movie was going to be this huge platform. So yeah. as opposed to just doing a song for the soundtrack, he did use it as a, a, a chance to address all this stuff, which is what hip-hop's about. And I think yeah. he felt... Obviously, being the godfather, like, you know, who he was and is, he had, you know, getting across all that, the messaging. I mean, that's such a huge part, right? And And I mean, I'm sure he was probably thinking to a degree, like, okay, this is a big budget, like, you know, real kind of movie here. This is a gigantic opportunity. For me, I am going to make the most of this opportunity, and so I'm going to give this everything I got, you know, and, uh, you know, clearly just put his best effort into it. Yeah, definitely one of the major highlights re-watching this. And I'd forgotten how how good it was. I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, Melly Mel's in that. It's great. It's all these old school guys. And it's like, oh, wow, no, he is in this. Yeah. And especially what a way to close the film. Um, Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And then, yeah, so it ends in, like, this big party. (laughs) Yeah. Which is great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just sort of, you know, big... Uh, kind of you know triumph in a sense, bittersweet, but yeah. uh, you know just big, big, big finale. It wraps it up. Yeah, and the credits roll, right? I mean, that's it. Credits roll. Yeah, we get to see you know introducing you know they, yeah, they sh- and they you know they give props to everybody. Andy B. Bad gets a little shout out. And oh I yeah, think that's how I knew who he was. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, um, yeah. Was there any other? Ma- Big highlights that we didn't really touch on that uh, stick out to you? Well, a, a, a couple of things, because I must say that a part of the movie that I was most intrigued by and that I spent the most time with rewatching a few days ago was the credits. So I, I paused every time uh, a new screen of credits came up because I really wanted to read like who was involved behind the scenes, uh, so on and so forth. And uh, so it was cool, Uh, you know, there was some familiar names, you know, some names I didn't know, you know, uh, some confirmation of, did I see Mr. Wiggles in there? Oh yeah, that was him, all right. (laughs) You know, all this sort of stuff. But one thing, and I don't know if you caught this, but my mind was absolutely blown by something I picked up on the credits. It probably wouldn't have blown my mind when I was a kid and I was probably long gone out of the theater, you know, before this part of the credits uh, showed up anyway. But the legendary, legendary actor Rita Moreno was listed in the credits as the manager of the Rocksteady crew. Who knew? What? It's crazy. Yeah. Rita Moreno. Do we even see her in the film? No. Not at all. Yeah, She's no. just credited in the credits as the manager of the Rocksteady crew. So immediately after watching this, I fired up Wikipedia just to see, like, does it make any mention of Rita Moreno's involvement in hip-hop culture? Now, she was, you know, kind of, it like, it, in my mind, it like, makes sense. It doesn't seem completely off the wall because arguably her I mean, she had a few big claims to fame, but one of the big ones is that she was involved in the electric company in in New York, you know, in the in the years before that, which was really, I mean, you know, it's it's children's educational, uh, you know, television, but there was something was distinctly, yeah. yeah, New York and funky uh, about it, and so 
I already knew in a, in a way that she kind of had her finger on, you know, kind of some hip things going on in New York, but I would never have guessed, and I certainly did not know in any way that she was the manager of the Rocksteady crew. So weirdly enough, the end of the credits of the movie is where I had my mind blown most. Wow. So, but she was actually like not playing the role of the man. Like she's nope. actually she's their the manager. actual manager. Wow. I yeah. wonder if they were from the same neighborhood maybe. Or, and she was yeah. involved in like dance and yeah. theater. So, wow. Yeah. Cause she was in West Side Story and all yeah, that sort of yeah, stuff. Yeah. So, I mean, it all adds up. It all makes like, you know, perfect sense in my mind. But this is something I feel like I want to know more about. It makes me want to like, you know, I would just love to have the opportunity to meet her and ask her about like, how did you get involved with the Rocksteady crew? That's so cool. And she is already someone who gets super high respect because she's one of the most like celebrated actors and stage performers of all time. Um, and so it's already something that you really have to respect. But the fact that on top of all her other incredible achievements, she managed the Rocksteady crew, it's like a million cool points. Yeah, yeah. R- right away. Yeah, my, that, that blew crazy. my mind. That's awesome. That and blew my mind. To it also that. makes you just think, yeah, I got to read more credits. You never yeah. know what you're going to find. You do yeah. that for a lot of films? You always sort of sit through all the credits? Yeah, sometimes. It, d- it depends on like, you know, my level of interest in the, uh, in the movie. But um, y- I-, I mentioned earlier that a friend of mine was involved in the New York City uh, Breakers. And so there was a part of me who was curious, like, might I see his name in the credits? I didn't, but uh, his old sort of partner in crime uh, was this guy, Michael Holman, who... Um, created the very short-lived TV show Graffiti Rock, uh, which was sort of like a Saturday afternoon Soul Train type show, but for hip-hop, only lasted like a handful of uh, episodes. He was the creator of that. He was also involved behind the, the scenes with, uh, with Beat Street, and uh, in particular uh, with you know the, the role that the New York City Breakers played in it and, and so on. So there were uh, you know a few other interesting things that I gleaned by uh, looking at the uh, credits. It was cool to see, you know, some of the musicians involved. Um, you know, my my ear is trained well enough to, to know um, that uh, Arthur Baker, who's sort of like a, a big uh, name in the music biz as a producer, his, his, you know, fingerprint is all over this movie in terms of the sound, uh, and he was involved with it, with the production of I think most of the music uh, in the in the movie, um, but uh, so yeah. Anyhow, interesting. Yeah, Harry Belafonte was involved in this as well. Yeah, I think he was a producer. Producer. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's a, and just even like tags that you would see. Like sometimes you'd see like so Zulu was all over the movie. You see Zulu popping up. So there's yep. definitely a Zulu nation. Uh, yeah, and in fact they get a big thanks in the credits oh, cool. as well. And the sense I got with the way that they were thanked. Because, you know, it was a powerful organization, in the Bronx in particular, um, but probably, I'm guessing, around the city. I'm, I'm sure, you know, the powers that were in Manhattan were probably very much aware of, of the Zulu Nation and its power and influence. And so I think, going back to some of the stuff we talked about earlier, like how did they pull this off? I have a feeling the Zulu Nation probably facilitated a lot, had a lot to do with that and making things happen. Uh, so, uh, I, yeah, I seem to remember seeing in the credits that there was something that, that said quite explicitly, like, you know, 
thanks to you know to the Zulu Nation for uh, you know facilitating you know so much kind of in the making of the of the movie. So that's kind of cool. Yeah, totally cool. Because you think of that era, it's like absolutely Zulu. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah kind of running the show in a lot yeah. of ways. Yeah. So I guess now we come to the the big question. Uh, you know, after all this time, you know, you you used to like Beat Street, but right now, do you still like this movie? No. No. <laughs> <laughs> wow. After all that, right? I now I I have to qualify that. Yeah. Yeah. Please. Um. But. You know, I I mentioned right off the top of our discussion here that I see this movie through a lot of different sets of goggles, and 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 so there is this dissonance in my mind because, you know, here over the last while we've highlighted all the things that stood out to me in the movie and the things that I thought were really cool that excited me that excited me was when I was a kid and still excite me now having just watched it again. Um, so there's a snapshot of some really cool stuff that was going on. The b-boy fashion was great. The dancing was great. Melly Mel's performance is, is I mean, masterful. Um, but, um, but, you know, it's, it's not quite enough to, uh, you know, overcome some of the problems that I have with it. And so I don't, I don't know it, if this is generally something you like to get into. Uh, sure, yeah. Well, you but, got, yeah, let's get into it. But... Um, so first of all, you know, the music plays a gigantic role uh, in this whole thing. And it comes at a time where I think hip hop was at a very awkward stage as far as the music goes. The culture, really cool. And the whole like b-boy culture, uh, you know, would have been right at the peak of like the fad of break dancing, I think, or, or maybe right at the tail end of it. And so, you know, that's, you know, super cool and all that. But uh, the music side of it, like the production and it, you know, being, you know, strongly electronic and in particular, as I alluded to a moment ago with the input of like Arthur Baker, um, it's so really so not my thing. And um, yeah, like uh, I, I can only assume and I couldn't say so for sure. But it was something that I heard a lot with a lot of Arthur Baker's music was, you know, it's 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 electro, you know, hip hop. It's like funky, funky, you know, kind of thing. But then always like this presence of guitars, like electric guitars and like this insistence on these like guitar solos or whatever, which were, you know, were never really my, uh, you know, my thing. And then these like uh, attempts throughout this movie which which seemed as as though it was trying to like prove you know a, a point of let's bring in all this other sort of like you know musical influence and let's get some latin stuff in there let's get some little jazz touches let's get some rock and roll in here and so on and so forth i can, i can appreciate the effort but it, a lot of it came across as just so deeply cheesy to me and the one the one part that again although i appreciate the effort i i don't think is something that they really got right because there were parts of it that they got absolutely right it's super cool seeing jazzy j there oh yeah we didn't even talk about him yeah and and he was i spinning yeah yeah and i know having had a chance to see jazzy j sort of talk and meet him last year that he, he took a lot of pride in the fact uh, that he was involved in that movie and he expressed that it, it was the same for bambata and so on and so forth 
But if you were really looking at what was going on on the street, you know, level in the Bronx and hip hop at the time, it's not what it sounded like, you know. And um, and yeah, I hate to say it. I mean, even you know, Beat Street Breakdown, it's pretty cool. And like of all the electronic like music production that goes on it, it's it's kind of the closest to like okay, that's like kind of dope, you know. But um, even that, just like the production of it, just like really kills me and just. I just like so not into it, and um, I, you know another point I wanted to make is that it really sort of says something when I think about like other great movies that I've ever seen. How, how many great movies can you think of where the show is stolen by like the extras and bit players? That's not supposed to happen, <laughs> right? <laughs> the extras aren't supposed to be the best part of any movie. But like, you know, the coolest thing about it is like, I don't know, the Rocksteady crew, they don't have any lines in the movie or anything like that, right? And so, um, you know, there's a lot of holes in the script, uh, in the story. The script itself is not great. The acting is is really not... Yeah, none of the actors really went on to anything else except Radon Chong. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, and granted, not a lot of professional... Actors, but yeah, Radon Chong was legit. But otherwise, like you know, the Kenny character, he went on to he's a like musician more than anything else. Yeah, he's a blues. He's musician, a kind of a big right? blues yeah. blues guy now. But um, but the overall thing, and I I touched on this, I alluded to it very, super briefly early on when I mentioned like Juilliard. Mm-hmm. The sense I get is is that, and I could be completely wrong, but this is what I imagine in my head that. In Manhattan, you know, at Juilliard, there's people like involved in dance. <clears throat> and, you know, it's young people, it's it's students, it's people who are interested in the cutting edge of like what's whatever is going on in the culture that they're interested in. So in this case, dance. <clears throat> and they're probably thinking, like, wow, there's something really intriguing going on across the river over there in the Bronx. Where like there are kids who are you know turning to art, including dancing, to uh, you know as like a pursuit and a pastime and a thing to kind of keep them out of trouble. You know, his- historically, you know, we know that gang culture used to be like this big problem in New York City, and then in a way, hip hop kind of like wiped it out because young people instead were really caught up in the art and so wanted to become b-boys and graffiti writers and rappers and DJs instead. And so the whole thing gives me the vibe like that there were, you know, just like a bunch of people from Fancy Pants, Manhattan at a dance school or whatever, like, hey, this gives me an idea for a movie. And so it just, I don't know this for sure, but it just feels like the wrong people were making it and it was coming from the wrong place. And that the thing they got right is like, okay, let's let's get some help from some people who know what they're talking about. But you know, the the smart thing to do if it was gonna be like, you know, really legit was just let Bambata and Jazzy J and Kumo D and Melly Mel let, let them really call the shots and tell you how to do it. And so when we have to, and this is where it really shows up, where you have to endure, 
you know, like these, the modern dance like sequences from the school. It's like, oh my God. And I remember when I was a kid, it's like, what the hell? I don't yeah, want to see this. That goes on really long. That's It yeah. goes on for a long time. And you almost get the sense like it's being jammed down your throat. Like, okay, check this out. Like, this is real, like, you know, dancing. And this is a taste of like, you know, the whatever, like real dance world. And, and then like, yeah, no one who went to see Beat Street came to see no. that. Yeah. No, <laughs> it just seems like such like a, a waste of time, and I'm just imagining like everybody who went to see that movie just squirming in their seats, like, "What is this whack garbage? Like, <laughs> when is this going to be over?" And you know, we sort of joked about it earlier, like the seemingly interminable like auditions at the, at the Roxy, which is like all this other stuff. It's like, why is this happening? Yeah, like we're here for the hip hop culture. Why are you showing us all this other weird shit? And it just makes no sense to me, you know. And so for as much as I can appreciate all the cool little things that like were captured kind of incidentally by the fact that you're just in the Bronx in 1983, like aren't enough to make up for just like the, the like sort of A, corny aspects and, and then B, quite frankly, like just inept parts. Like it's just, it's, it's not, it's no, uh, <clears throat> You know, it, it's no, it's, it's no Citizen Kane. Yeah. I mean, to you know, to to put it to put it mildly, and so, you know, as a, I mean, if I'm gonna make a list of the top ten greatest, you know, films ever made, there's no way Beat Street's going on the list. And if you said now go ahead and make a thousand, a list of a thousand, it's probably not going on that list either. There's lots of cool shit in it, but as an actual film, and that's that's what ruins it for me is that throughout my life and after like I said I was probably 12 or 13 when I saw this movie for the first time later in my life I really got deeply like you know into film and like it kind of ruined things like this for me where it, it's it's hard for me to sort of like forget what I know and what I've seen and what I've learned to just accept this as like a cool kind of drive-in sort of thing. And that's not to say that I don't have an appreciation for B-movies or whatever else, because there's some that I think are truly great. Um, but even as like a, you know, kind of, I say smaller budget, but we talked earlier about like Orion's involvement and all that sort of stuff. It had money behind it. <clears throat> but, um, you know, this wasn't really anyone's idea of like a first run, like, you know, big time, like blockbuster thing and um but you know again even if it if you're uh kind of holding it up against smaller movies or for that matter even some of the other hip-hop movies that were made at the time that we talked about like wild style or style wars or whatever i mean yeah. I, I, frankly i i don't think it can even really compare to those like i would say those other movies are way better in terms of like kind of getting it right wild style has a few kind of cheesy moments as as well but there's this too many parts of this movie that are really embarrassing. So, uh, although there are parts of it that I love, I, I, I can't at the end of the day, if I just have to vote yes or no, I, yeah. just, I just can't say, yeah, great movie, I, I love it. It's kind of terrible. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, when you look at it, not, yeah, a lot of plot holes, acting not really so great, way scenes that go on for way too long, However, for me, I do still like this. It 
and it's more my childhood. Not looking at it from definitely, I wouldn't put this in my top hundred films of all time. Right. No way. In terms of hip hop films, now I'm like, I got to go back and rewatch Crush Groove and everything else and see how they all rate because that that would actually I'm really curious to do that now because it's just been too long since I've seen any of them. Yeah. Yeah, you raise a lot of great points. There were certain, definitely moments with the soundtrack where I thought, well, you could hear a bit more hip-hop or a bit more, yeah, they lean towards more like big-budget movie, dramatic, you know, setting soundtrack. There were a couple missed opportunities. I still do like it for these glimpses of New York City. We yeah. talked about New York being the star, and looking at it from that angle, just this incredible snapshot of what was going on at the time with the fashion and just sort of a broad outsider view, and maybe not like, yeah, as real as Style Wars or, or Wild Style. Um, I still definitely liked it, enjoyed it. I don't, I'm not in a rush to see it. It's not like a movie that I'm going to be like, I got to watch this every year. Right. Um, but definitely, I had a lot of fun. Those b-boy moments are the best. You're right, Rocksteady Crew, like that whole scene, still yeah. like, if you told me that one, the two two memories that really, really are strongest for me, Crazy Legs taking off his shoes and Ramo dying on the track. Like, those are strong moments. And you know what else I'll add? I forgot to mention this earlier. <clears throat> In the big finale, when, you know, Bernard Fowler comes out and it's sort of the, the gospel part because I think it's only at that point that the b-boys come out and start dancing again but they have like the clear sort of like lucite flooring and they have camera shots from below this clear floor and so you're looking up through the floor at the break dancing above I had never seen that I've never seen the dancing filmed in that way before and that was very cool I must say really cool choice and a really cool like look like when you see the spins and I was always amazed when I was a kid like how can someone do a backspin that tight where they're rotating so fast and for so long and when you have that shot from underneath and you can see like the pressure point on the floor of where their back is making contact on the floor and everything it's like that's really cool to see it's like instructive and it's just a really cool view of it there's lots of little things like that and I think as we've talked about this film over the last while, it sounds really good when we're talking about it. Just the execution, I think, misses the mark so many times along the way. Totally. So totally it's like a fair, really yeah. good idea, a lot of good ideas. You might even argue too many good <laughs> ideas because they try to cram a lot of ideas into this. Suffers a little bit from a lack of focus. The drifter without thing, a... Yeah, you know? they just couldn't decide who was... But um, so, uh, you know... A lot of a lot of problems. I just like I can't say this is a great film, and there's parts of it like that drive me nuts. There's you know I can't help but think like I can just keep thinking like I just I would not, let me in there. I want to clean this up. Yeah. I would have done this like you know so differently, uh, but um, but that's not to say it's without merit because there's a lot of cool shit in it. There's yeah. there's no two ways about it. But um, yeah, just in, you know in its execution it. For, for me, it just misses the mark a little too much. Well, are you glad you rewatched it, though? I am glad that I, I rewatched it, and it brought back some really cool memories. I mean, the, you know, it, it uh, achieves super high marks on the, like, nostalgia scale for me. Huge. Brought back, like, you know, a lot of great memories. But, um, and... and I'm really glad that I learned that Rita Moreno was the manager <laughs> of the Rocksteady crew. That who knew honest, that's what you uh, take who, who from knew? it? Honest to God, that really, uh, you know, blew my mind. And, um, and you know, I, I, it was a good reminder. And I'll never lose appreciation because I was actually, uh, 
I, I was talking with our mutual friend, Joe Run, kind of legendary uh, hip-hop figure from our hometown of, of Halifax, just earlier this year, um, about Melly Mel. Joe and I talk about just hip-hop all the time. And I, I, was, I just wrote, I felt compelled to write to Joe at one point saying, you know, Joe, I'm just I'm going through this Melly Mel renaissance right now, and I'm kind of remembering all over again of just why he's the greatest MC of all time. And as I was going through this personal Melly Mel renaissance, I, uh, I did re-listen to Beat Street Breakdown earlier this year, because I remember always being struck by how poetic his writing was. And I seem to remember, and this is cloudy, I don't know if I'm remembering this right or not, but I seem to even, I, I remember even having an appreciation for the fact that there was something of high artistic merit going on with that song when I was a kid because I think I did some little presentation in class about it, wanting to like show people like, this is like, this is great poetry, talks about the problems of the, the world, you know. I remember being really impressed by that. And so I wanted to go back and re-listen to the song and, uh, I mean, you know, for me, that's like the biggest and most important takeaway is that I, I think a true, you know, hip hop, or, or at the very least rapping, like masterpiece is, is rooted right in the middle of this movie in its big moment. I mean, that's the thing they nail, is that when it's all building to this one thing, it all culminates in this big performance. And if the performance had to be great, well, <laughs> It was, because what Melly Mel did is unbelievable. I just think that's some of the you know, greatest like rap writing ever. I mean, he was incredible. I've heard stories that you know, when he was younger, he and his sister were both, like they wrote poetry before, they ever, before he ever got into rapping. And I don't know if that came from his parents or, or whatever. But I just, I just think he's one of the, the, the greatest poets in the history of, of hip hop music and of, of rapping and wow, just like that, I mean, that just blows me away how great that, uh, you know, his performances, again, the music itself, like the production is like probably what would prevent it from going on my list of the greatest rap songs ever, but what he did and wrote there, goodness gracious, it's just, I mean, absolutely incredible. So again, it's not like it's without merit. There are lots of things about it that I do love. Well, you know what I'm hearing now? You got to get the acapella, and you, yeah, seriously, and Joe Ron are both. You guys got to remix it. Yeah, <laughs> that I wonder be, if that's out there because I mean that would be, that would be great. It is. It is phenomenal, and if nothing else, I I would suggest people watch this just to see Melly Mel's performance at the end, then and the b boying, right? And, yeah, see that. But, yeah, check out check that out the song, soundtrack, like, Beat Street Breakdown, or for that matter, even just like Google the lyrics to Beat Street Breakdown, because, uh, I mean, it is something else. And as I've gotten older and gone, you know, kind of through my life with music, the thing that has solidified more and more in my mind as a separator of good music and not good music is just like the conviction of the performance you know, like if it's if it's real and you can tell it's real for the person who is is performing it, and not only is the writing great in that song, but I mean, Melly Mel's performance is 
just wide open. You can tell he's feeling it. I mean, you can just picture him like with just like the weight of the entire world on him and just like, you know, letting it rip. It's heavy. Yeah, and he comes out like a WWE wrestler, right? Like oh, he's man. just like larger than life. Yeah. 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 Unreal. Not to mention the fact that he's built like a yeah. like a wrestler <laughs> as well. But uh yeah, just just a monstrous performance in every way. Yeah. So see, I think you almost sound like you still like it in uh, in some ways. I know you do. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, yeah. In 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 certain in certain ways, for sure. And that's not to say that uh Let's let's put it this way. Before I can ever imagine myself going back and watching this movie beginning to end again, I can easily imagine myself going onto YouTube and searching like, you know, Beat Street, you know, Melly Mel. What I, I want to see that performance again. I want to see some of the B Boy battles again. But I don't need to sit through the whole rest of the movie to see those great moments. For sure, for sure. So there's still room out there to make a really, really great hip hop movie. One day, I think so. Yeah, well, I wonder what. What do you think's the best hip hop movie well, ever made? Well, that's it. I mean, this always comes up in like the top lists, right? Yeah. Like anybody's like, oh, you got to see Beat Street, you got to see Crush Groove. I mean, when you think of like more recent stuff, it's kind of like, well, I don't know. I mean, straight out of Compton, but that's yeah. definitely focused on the you know NWA and the West Coast thing. Um, there's, yeah. it's a hard. As far as a feature film, because like. Wildstyle straddles the line. I guess mm -hmm. you'd call it a feature film, but there's so much about it that is documentary. Mm -hmm. You could you could almost tip it over to being documentary, and it's almost unfortunate that they tried to like wedge this little plot into it, you know. But um, I always liked Fear of a Black Hat. Yeah, but that's not really the same thing, right? Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, maybe uh, maybe Wildstyle is. There was a Is Roxanne it? movie that came out recently. That was pretty, that was, that was was, pretty good. Yeah, it was really good. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty so well that done. It was in recent memory. That's kind of one that I've seen that I really liked. Yeah. Uh, but you're right. I think there's room uh, to, uh, you know, there's still, there's still kind of room at the top of the, the heap, perhaps. Yeah. There was that show, right? A couple, like a year or two ago. I forget. It was, uh, was it Bar? What's his name? Boz Lerman? Yeah. He did a TV show. Oh yeah, and uh, what was that called? That was pretty. That was pretty cool. Someone was was Melly Mel even involved with that? He might have been. Yeah. Now, now we're just going off. But uh, I, I never. I didn't. I watched one episode, and I didn't. I didn't that touched. Sure. That had some cool moments. They mm. touched on some cool stuff there. But I would love to see. You know, there's there's still like stories that haven't been told at all that I'd love to see told. I mean, there's some unbelievable like drama in the history of of hip hop music um you know the basic story of how it all started is so great and i still think could you know be told you know really well there's so many interesting characters like individually uh along the way you know that whose whose stories could and should be be told um but i'm probably the hardest person out there to please um, and I've had a problem with practically everything I've seen, and that's probably just about inevitable. You know, I'm, I'm going to be a harsh critic, and I want it to be great. I want it to be perfect. So granted, and I probably should have said this right off the top, I'm probably harder to please with this sort of thing than almost anybody else. For sure. And that's totally fair, and, that's, and you should be that way. 
and again, for me, it really is, I think, the nostalgia factor that wins out for me and, and why I do still like this. Because I've certainly, on the show, we've rewatched some movies that are just terrible. <laughs> so uh, this, uh, this wins for me. I got to thank you so much for... That was fun. Know, yeah, this, being so generous w- with your time today and, uh, and, and helping us out on this podcast. It was incredible to have you. And, yeah, uh, thanks for the invite. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you'll have to come back for season two and uh, see if we can find one you do like. <laughs> yeah, that can be done. And, uh, you know, just to kind of <clears throat> part the curtain a little bit, we, we sort of, you know, we're communicating before this that, um, you know, when I was growing up, my dad ran a gas station, and for many years there was a room at the at the back of the gas station that was a video store, and so I consumed a lot of movies when I was a kid, uh, and uh, a lot of them I haven't seen since those days. There were a lot of B movies. There were a lot of like, you know, crazy horror movies and stuff like that. So there's some other stuff to dig into there. Yeah. Amazing. I look All forward right. to it. And uh, yeah, shout out Gloobies. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Wacky Wheatley, where you at? <laughs> All right, peace. And everybody wants a part in that party I'm hanging out 
rocking late at night. Running wild in the town of the neon light. You either play some ball or stand in the hall. Huh? You gotta make something out of nothing at all. I'm sitting in the classroom learning the rules. And it says you can't do graffiti in school. They can't be wrong in the hollowed hall. So my notebook turned into a big wall. The heart of a lion and the courage of three. In the mind of a man but wiser than me. You're the soul of the brother who won't come back. Who died in my arms on the railroad track. Cause I'm caught in the rat race looking for my own space. It gotta be a better place for you and me. There's pie in the sky and an eye for an eye. Some people gotta die just to be free. Search for justice and what do you find? You find just us under the unemployment line. You find just us sweating from dawn to dusk. There's no justice. It's huh, just up. Huh. Still life urban masterpiece. Your chain mop was written on chains and walls. A million dollar gift only God released. Huh. And yet you got killed for nothing at all. So after this, No more pain, no more chunk chains, none of that bull, just movies, museums, and the Hall of Fame. So all you hip-hops, get on up and let's take it to the top where we belong, cause the age of the Beach Street Wave is here. Everybody, let's sing along to come on and say ho, ho, say ho, ho, let me know I'm rocking the microphone, everybody say Sand and the headlines say, Man destroys man. Extra, extra, read all the bad news on the wall of peace that everybody would lose. The rise and fall, the last great empire. The sound of the whole world caught on fire. The ruthless struggle, the desperate gamble, the game that left the whole world in shambles. The cheats, the lies, the alibis, and the foolish attempt to conquer the skies. Lost in space, and what is it worth? Huh? The president just forgot about Earth, spending all time beings, and maybe even trillions. The cost of weapons ran in. It's gold in the street, and it's diamond under feet, and the children in Africa don't even eat. Flies on the faces, they're living like mice, and the houses even make the ghetto look nice. Huh? The water tastes funny, it's forever too sunny, and they work all month and don't make no money. A fight for power, a nuclear shower, a people shout out in the darkest hour. The sights unseen, and voices unheard, and finally the bomb gets the last word. Christian killed Muslims, and German killed Jews, and everybody's bodies are used and abused. Huh? Minds are poison, and souls are polluted. Superiority complex is deep-rooted Allegiance and license And people got prices Egomaniacs control the self-righteous Nothing is sacred And nothing is pure So the revelation of death is our cure People's in terror The leaders made the error And now they can't even look in the mirror Cause we gotta suffer While things get rougher And that's the reason why we got to get tougher So learn from the past And work for the future And don't be a slave to no computer Cause the children of man inherits the land And the future of the world is in your hands So just
course, that was Beat Street Breakdown by Grandmaster Melly Mel and the Furious Five. This has been another episode of Do You Still Like This Movie? Thanks again. I'm Word Burglar. For more music and podcasts and comics and all kinds of fun stuff, check out wordburglar.com, my low-budge website. And uh, you can always drop me a line at wordburg at gmail.com. Big thanks again to Buck65 for this awesome episode and Peter Project for our incredible intro and outro music. Happy New Year. We'll see you in 2022. Peace. Network.